Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, everybody. I am Drew. How you doing? Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to all of our groovy listeners. Our groovy, goovy, good listeners. I'm just trying Did to... Did you say get, goovy? Yeah, I'm just trying to get alliteration into this, even though it doesn't make any sense, but... You know, whatever works. Okay. Whatever doesn't you know, make sense works. Got it. Well, you know, works for me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this week's episode is going to be another manga menagerie. Did you say we're manga? Gonna... Manga? Manga. Come... Manga, what, what man? Is you, man? Is you a guy? <laughs> you ain't know how to pronounce manga? Manga menagerie. Manga menagerie. <laughs> that's right so that being said tell the good people drew which manga manga are we going over today today we are covering a zoo in winter by jiro taniguchi this is a one volume story uh it was originally serialized in japanese in the seinen manga magazine called big comic original from 2005 to 2007 it's published in English by Fanfare Ponein Mont. The translation is by Kumar Siva Subraman. Oh, I'm going to butcher his name. I have butchered his name. <laughs> Kumar Siva Subramanian. Graphic adaptation and layout is credited to Sly Wild Tidings. And, nice. Uh, you can I, read words. Good on you. <laughs> I, I can read most words. There are still plenty of words that, that trip me up. You did good. You did good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the graphic adaptation and layout credit, I think, is because the English version that we're reading has been flipped from its original Japanese. So, yeah, this is one of those manga where you read it like any other English comic from left to right. But, uh, yeah, 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 you can talk a little bit more about that later on. Uh Here's a little bit of information about Jiro Taniguchi by way of introduction to the creator. Unfortunately, he passed away several years ago. Uh, he died in 2017 at the relatively young age of 69. He's somebody who had a pretty long career in comics, uh, starting off as an assistant in the late 60s i believe and making his uh singular debut in 1970 if you check out his bibliography he's got a pretty extensive list of credits throughout the decades that he was active up until he passed away unfortunately it just seems like a lot of his work hasn't been translated into english i mean there's a good amount of it that has been but just uh -huh. proportionately speaking it definitely just looking at all the different titles of the things that he's worked on, it just kind of whets your appetite and makes you wish that we had access to those things in English. Well, if we live long enough, who knows? They might translate it eventually. Yeah, that's true. Anything is possible as long as we keep surviving. That's right. Just just like... Uh... Oh, I forgot his name, but... <laughs> what? 
I was I was gonna I was gonna quote uh uh the basketball player, but I forgot his name. <laughs> Are you talking about Kevin Garnett? Kevin Garnett, there we go. <laughs> Anything is possible. Just like he said. I was gonna say Kevin Durant, but I I, I knew in my head that wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was a Kevin. That's funny, man. That yeah. is funny. So one of the interesting things about Jiro Taniguchi is that he was a guy who definitely was successful in his home country. You know, he was well acclaimed and and received awards like the Osama Tezuka Culture Award and the Shogakukan Prize. But for some reason, man, his works really connected with people in in Europe on a pretty deep level, and he, he got pretty big there. Uh, like there's a lot of stories about him uh, in Angoulême at the comics festival there. And I know he also had a collaboration with Mobius at some point. Uh, he was even knighted by the French government. So he has the, uh, he had the official title Knight of the Order of Arts and Letters. Nice. And he got a title in Italy as Master of Comics. So that that's pretty impressive stuff, you know, like it's, I feel like for someone who got so much respect in the European uh, comics world, it's kind of strange that it really doesn't feel like he got too much recognition here in America. Like when it comes to manga, like that, this isn't the kind of manga that ever really seems to get popular. Yeah. Well, you know what our attitude towards the average man is and any instance that i get to disparage the average comics reader i will so if i'm going to presume the worst about them that also includes their inability to recognize good comics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> between <laughs> the gutters the podcast where we talk condescendingly about your average person <laughs> <laughs> We basically take the average person and throw him in the gutter. <laughs> uh, why but, do you listen to us? <laughs> no, because the people who do listen to us, they're definitely above average. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd like to think that you're here because you got good tastes. Exactly. Exactly, man. Oh, yeah. Another thing I was going to mention about his work being well-received in Europe is that one of his comics a distant neighborhood that actually received a live action film adaptation in in uh i think they changed the setting to paris so like they kind of you know reworked it a bit for their own culture but apparently that it was a big enough piece of work that somebody over there wanted to make that into a live action movie oh interesting yeah. It's interesting that they would find these because it just reminded me of that Adrian Tomine comic that got mm-hmm. turned into a movie in France as well. And it's just interesting to me that they find these not not necessarily obscure, but definitely not works that are more well known and that they would adapt them for to, to film over there. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's it's food for thought. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I'm reading this uh, obituary uh, that was written by Zach Davison. Zach Davison is a, a manga translator and one of the notable uh, people who, I guess, writes or blogs about manga as well. But he wrote an obituary for Jiro Taniguchi uh, in 2017, and it's posted on the Comics Journal website. And you can read a little bit more about him in that obituary. But one of the things that Davison mentions about Taniguchi is that he writes, his work inspired an art movement in France called Nouvelle Manga. I probably mispronounced Nouvelle because I don't know French at all. <laughs> but his work inspired an art movement led by Frederick Boylet and Benoit Peters, with whom Taniguchi worked on the comic Tokyo is My Garden. Huh. Yeah. So he was a pretty influential guy in the Franco-Belgian comics world. Pretty yeah. interesting to consider that. Just listening to what you've been mentioning in this early introduction, it's just made me realize just how little I know about this guy. Which is understandable. Like He's clearly had a very long life with a massive body of work and you know relative to that i've only been aware of him for it's got to be like two years at this point so it's uh it's definitely an entire new world for me that i've yet to fully expose myself to yeah yeah, yeah. there have been a couple of his works that were a couple other of his works that were adapted into like TV shows and things like that. Uh, like one of the bigger ones is called Solitary Gourmet. Huh. Okay. But again, it's one of those manga that I don't think has received an official English translation, but it was successful enough or popular enough to become a TV series in Japan and lasted pretty long they made uh i think it's still going on and it's, so it's been like over 10 years and it's got like over 100 episodes wow is it like uh like one of those soap operas or i i don't know if that's the yeah, term that they use for court, it, but... well i think it's a, a drama i don't know if it's a soap opera the description of the plot in on wikipedia is pretty brief it says as a salesman Goro Inogashira travels Japan, where he visits various restaurants and street booths to sample the local cuisine. Each chapter features a different place and dish. Oh. That yeah. sounds like the kind of show that I could enjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really know where the drama plays into it, but it, it sounds like a pretty relaxing kind of show. Just probably a show about, or a story about a person who just travels across the country to different restaurants and street booths eating food. Right, right. Pretty simple premise, but those are the kind of shows or stories that can be pretty relaxing too. Yeah, yeah. Like when you describe it like that, it doesn't sound so far off from that mass movement a couple of years ago where... Everybody was into 
cooking shows and ASMR. Yeah. And, and, and things like that, right? Where it's not necessarily about having a really in-depth sort of story as much as it is about a experience. So yeah, exactly. I, I can definitely see the enjoyment factor in that. I don't know. I mean, I'm still not necessarily the person who's on board with mukbangs or anything like that. Like, I would never just turn on YouTube and be like, what I'm going to watch mukbang. Uh, that's – have you ever heard of that? Uh, is that okay. one of those videos where it's just about a, uh, a person eating? Like, you're just watching somebody eat? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Essentially, yeah. So it's not even like a travel show or a restaurant review. You're just – I guess living vicariously through these people as they eat and you're just uh yeah you're you're I guess you're Dude, I just got a new idea. What's that? What if we do that but we talk about comics while we eat? Uh I'm not very confident in how I look on camera. I'm even less confident at the idea of recording me eating and allowing the world to see what I look like when I'm eating cuz it is not a graceful experience. It's oh, okay. uh, it's probably quite gross. <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel like I've seen you eat plenty of times, and we usually talk about comics when we eat. That's true. We could do a version of that that's like that one show that they did with Seinfeld, with Jerry Seinfeld, comedians in cars, comedians in cars getting coffee. <laughs> that was a show. I don't remember Talking that about at comics all. while we It was a decently popular show. I think Okay, okay. Well, I I don't know if it was popular, but it got several seasons and it was just Jerry Seinfeld driving up to uh, a random not random, but a comedian friend of his his house and them going in a car ride discussing the creative aspects of their work and having coffee with one another. Mm, I see. I so, see. So it it wouldn't be too different from that, I guess. But I'm still not too confident or in love with the idea of eating something on camera. We could we could get something really messy. We could it could just be us eating borscht every week. Is that messy? I imagine so. I thought that was just soup. Yeah, but you know, soup's not really unless you're very careful about it or sipping it through a straw it's 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 more like a stew i think because there are like big chunks in it oh okay so yeah i wouldn't want to splash anything on a microphone either yeah exactly that would that but <laughs> but my point being uh that there are a lot of people who watch those mukbangs and they were like super popular for a while i don't know if they still are but you know, I I think at a glance the idea of it isn't something that appeals to me, but I do watch variations of that. I watch I watch these travel shows on YouTube sometimes where nobody ever says a word and you're just following the camera as it goes to different places. And yeah. You know, I'm just kind of living vicariously through the viewer as they 
go to different hotels or uh you know enjoy the scenery yeah i've enjoyed stuff like that too those videos where it's just like a first person view of somebody walking through a remote countryside or something scenic Uh uh those are pretty relaxing heck i've spent a bunch of time especially during the pandemic i was watching a lot of youtube Same videos here. of people Same just here. watching of people walking in skyrim <laughs> <laughs> so not even like accomplishing any quests or fighting yeah. enemies or doing anything in particular just yeah. literally walking from one corner of the map to the other corner <laughs> for whatever reason it's oddly relaxing i i really became obsessed with train travel for a really brief period of time where i would watch these people as they just rode the train and then they would set the camera up and you would just watch the world go by uh Mm. through their window and it's not something that i can really explain as to 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 someone who wouldn't get it why i find that enjoyable other than i just do yeah it's it's just a peaceful experience and it'll, it's something that allows you to lose yourself in the observation of whatever it is you're looking at, right? Yeah, you're kind of transporting your mind on into uh, an adventure, or you know, you're you're picturing yourself in that locale and just imagining yeah. it. It triggers your imagination. Yeah, and I think that's something that is applicable to Jiro Tenoguchi's stories. Not that there isn't a plot or there aren't things going on, but that quality of his storytelling is definitely present so that, you know, while you're reading uh, Jiro Tanoguchi manga, you're observing what he observes and you get to see the beauty of what he sees in that moment. Yeah, actually, I do want to specifically bring up one of my favorite works of his, which is called The Walking Man. And that's pretty much exactly like what we were talking about. Mm. So it it all kind of ties in neatly. The Walking Man is a manga where each chapter is just a regular old middle-aged man who goes for a walk in his neighborhood. And that's it. Like you just see him walking in his neighborhood. The, The backgrounds are gorgeously rendered in excruciatingly fine detail. Sometimes he'll... I don't know, he'll see a dog or something or he'll just look at the people who are walking by or he'll find something new as he's walking by a park. He'll observe some nature or whatever it may be. There's like a lot of different stories where it's it's just the man, the main character, walking through the neighborhood and yeah. appreciating things that most people probably take for granted or or don't really pay much attention to and i think it's a book where if you read that book for the first time and and like really take your time through it because it's not a book that has very many words it's very solitary and peaceful in that sense where it's the art just telling you showing you what the man is seeing and there's like a poetry to it poetry and a rhythm a lot of ambiance and texture and mood to it. I think if you just take your time and read that book, the next time you go for a walk in your neighborhood, you're going to start appreciating 
and noticing things that maybe you didn't appreciate and notice in the past. It's yeah. it's a pretty nice book, man. I definitely recommend that one. See, I like that because I feel like most people, I feel like a majority of people would look at something like that and say, it's boring. It's boring. I read through it real quick. There, nothing really happened. I just felt like I wasted my time, right? And it's a would, comic. To that person, I would say, when I look at you, I feel like your parents wasted their time. <laughs> that was two minutes they could have spent doing almost anything else. <laughs> Wabow! <laughs> Wabow! Your dad's got a limp noodle! <laughs> But yeah, you were saying? Yeah, it's just... For a podcast that talks about comics, I also feel like we want to explore a various range of experiences and reading styles. And I do want to... I hope to introduce anyone that's listening to this to the concept of enjoying a story for the craft of it outside of you know what we conventionally think of when we think of storytelling which is a a, a lot of people yeah yeah i think a lot of people treat stories whether it's a tv show or a comic book i think a lot of people treat stories as plot delivery devices when There's actually a lot more than that stories can accomplish than just delivering exactly. plots. There's a lot of different kind of stories that you could be consuming. And if you're open to it, you can really enlighten yourself to just different ways of experiencing and viewing the world outside of just what what did these characters do and how do we resolve this? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's I think that's obviously the most basic form of story that's in existence which is fine you know there's nothing wrong with those kinds of stories we we obviously read more than our fair share of it but we should be consumers of fiction that are open to a pretty wide spectrum of storytelling styles and we should welcome something different even if it's not something that necessarily immediately fulfills us or 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 immediately speaks to us I, I think if you're patient with it as a reader you'll you'd be able to find some value in it yeah so next week we're gonna read league of extraordinary gentlemen the black dossier oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> I might have to take a couple of drinks before we read that. <laughs> I might be slurring my speech on the podcast, so I don't guarantee that I'm going to be on my A game, but it will be the only way that I can get through it. <laughs> Going so, back to Jiro Taniguchi, one of the other things that he's really known for is that he's a master of kind of a specific subgenre of story 
but he's really good at stories about mountain climbing. Huh. Yeah. He has a series called The Summit of the Gods, and that was adapted into a live-action film also uh, in 2016. I don't know anything about it. I haven't read the manga. It's a series, and I do believe that's a series where the volumes have all been translated into English. It's just that the library doesn't have it, and it's not the kind of thing that really ever I see on sale. So I, I guess I've kind of been hesitant to commit myself to buying, I think it's five volumes of the series. But from what I know about it, it's a mountain climbing story. And uh, he's got some other ones that are that also deal with mountain climbing. Um, there's one called The Quest for the Missing Girl, which is a one volume story. And that one I have read, Sounds and like it's my about love life. Hey yo, hey yo. The quest for the missing girl, man. It's like <laughs> that's my life, dude. Every day I'm looking for the girl that's missing in my life. <laughs> Where are you? Where are you at? Holla back! Holla back! <laughs> but yeah, that story is about a mountain climber who gets called into the big city to help his friend find his kidnapped daughter, basically. So, yeah, he, it's, it's about a mountain climber using his mountain climbing skills to try and track someone down, which sounds like a really weird combination. Huh. But sounds Taniguchi like also has a reputation in his own work, his other work, doing kind of crime and mystery type of stories also. Huh. Unfortunately, those aren't really available in English either. I think in either the late 80s or perhaps the early 90s, there was one of his works that was a crime story called Hotel Harborview that was translated into English. But that book is out of print, and I looked it up on eBay, and it's going for crazy prices, man. That sucks. So many good comics out there that we'll never get access to just because they won't reprint it or make it accessible. Yeah. Let me ask you, man, what are some of the Taniguchi comics that you've read? So I mentioned earlier that he's someone that I've just been aware of maybe about two years now, uh, if only because, well, really it's because of COVID. Uh, during that period of time, we were working on a series for the podcast where me, you, Zach, and Shanus were looking for things to recommend to people that were based on genres of comics. Uh, we've since stopped doing that series for the time being because Zach and Shanus are kind of busy and it began to demand a lot because we had like 60-something categories. <laughs> yeah. But during this period of time, I, I really wanted to go out of my way to fill up as many of the categories as possible so i remember looking for art comics or yeah or comics about art that i would recommend and i came upon jiro taniguchi's guardians of the louvre and the thing about this that was interesting was it was a series of comics made by the louvre museum art museum in france the where they approached various comic book creators throughout the world to make comics that 
were centered around the Louvre Museum. So Guardians of the Louvre was some, was probably the first thing that I had read. And by coincidence, I think you had just started getting into some of his works. So it, it was yeah. just, you know, an odd coincidence that we were both reading him and we were on these parallel tracks until the moment where these uh these experiences merge together so so yeah that that's the one comic that i read by him it was something where his art impressed me enough and his style was something that stuck with me and on top of that your heartfelt recommendation of his work was something that kept him in my in my mind so this past year oddly enough i've had a couple of different occasions where i've found different works of his for sale at a decently cheap price and i just ended up picking them up so you know i've i've gotten these two books from him uh, which ones I, did you get i picked up a zoo in winter and the one uh what's the what's the one about fatherhood are you speaking of a journal of my father I believe that's the other one that I got. I got that at Comics Experience Outpost when that was closing for two bucks, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and then it sucked that the place closed down. But. Well, yeah, yeah. But the deal was cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll always have something to remember them by. Exactly, exactly. And then just about a couple of months ago, I found a zoo in winter at the Green Apple in their discount bin for four bucks. So I was like, dude... I got to get this. Yeah, it's, those are crazy cheap deals. Yeah, yeah. And this was my opportunity to read it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I paid full price or at least really close to full price for, for my copies of the books of his I have. Nice, man. Nice. I, yeah, I'm kind of curious now what your what your exposure to him was. How, how did you come across Jiro Tanaguchi? I can't remember how I first heard of him, but I do remember that I somehow came across a distant neighborhood. Oh, you know what it was? I think it was because I had just read a manga and watched an anime called Erased, which was about time travel. Uh, I think I've mentioned it in some of our other episodes, but it's a it's a story where a guy has the ability to go back in time but when he goes back in time he goes back into the version of himself that exists back then so like he falls back into in time to his like 10 year old self so he has his adult mind and memories and experiences but he's just in his child body uh and i think when i was reading up on that uh when i was reading up about that series i found I somehow must have come across uh, recommendations or something for stories that were kind of similar because a distant neighborhood has a similar premise where a middle-aged man, in this case, rather than a young adult man, but a distant neighborhood is about a middle-aged man who uh, wakes up one day, or I guess he doesn't really wake up, but he, he goes out drinking one one afternoon and then kind of passes out and then wakes up in the body of his, I guess, 
I forget if it's middle school or high school self, but he has a chance to kind of relive his life. And also it's a chance to re-examine his relationship with his own father because one of the defining elements of his youth was that his father walked out on the family and he never really understood why that happened. And now that he has this chance to relive his youth, he's going to try and see if he can either change it or at least come to some kind of understanding as to why his dad would have done that. But I heard, yeah, that's how... I heard about the story. I borrowed it from the library. Fortunately, somehow the library had a copy of it that was kind of worn down too, to be honest. So I, I guess other people must have been reading it a few times. And I remember getting that the summer before the pandemic. It was It's a pretty clear memory in my mind. That was definitely in either July or August of... 2019 maybe maybe as late as september but i think it was like july or august and it was something i started reading in the evening and then i just got so engrossed i ended up finishing the book uh that same night and it's a pretty thick one it's one of his longer one volume books i think it's i don't know closer to like 380 pages maybe i forget exactly but i i liked it a whole lot really enjoyed the aesthetics of it visually he he just draws backgrounds in such incredible detail that it makes you feel like you're there and the storytelling is engrossing i totally lost myself in the story so after having such a positive experience with a distant neighborhood i knew i had to buy my own copy of that which i eventually did and i also continued seeking out some of his other works so that's how i ended up getting the Walking Man, a Journal of My Father, The Quest for the Missing Girl, and A Zoo in Winter. I also have one of his short story collections, but so far uh, that's the one that I have, which I haven't actually read yet. But nice. those other ones have all been winners. Nice. Yeah. I think me finding my copy at the Green Apple, it was fortuitous, and it just was something that gave us a reason both of us a reason to one read it and to discuss it on this podcast so yeah it it all just worked out and this was a good opportunity trying to figure out what we would discuss for our 2023 slate so yeah yeah, it was totally a a a good opportunity to check it out and discuss Mm -hmm. it so you mentioned you only you've only read that Louvre book uh, as is in addition to Azu and Winter, but I'm curious if you think there's anything in that Louvre comic that uh, I don't know any recurring themes or ideas or traits in that work that you noticed in Azu and Winter as well, or are they just two completely different works? Uh. It's been a while since I've read The Guardians of the Louvre, so I don't really remember it super well. But thinking back on it, I guess what I would say is a connective theme between that and Azu in Winter is a, a book 
or a story rather that examines what it means, what art means, what it means to be an artist and what it means to create art. So I think there are two works that view his personal uh, outlook on, on that subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think uh, some of the things that I've noticed in reading his work so far, uh, and these are just, I'm speaking strictly about the ones that I've read, but I, I do think that he writes a lot about fathers and fatherhood. There's some pretty interesting stuff when you compare something like A Distant Neighborhood to A Journal of My Father. The Journal of My Father is very realistic, whereas A Distant Neighborhood, like I mentioned, involves a fantastical time travel element. But both of those really examine uh, the role of the father in a traditional household and uh, provide plenty of room for analysis and reminiscing reminiscing about memories that's another thing i think comes across pretty strongly in his works just memories and how the passage of time colors our perceptions of the past i would agree with that i would say that the guardians of the louvre is a similar takes a similar track in that I don't know if it's necessarily specifically about the main character's personal life as much as it is his examination of the history of art through time, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, it's another, it's another take on a very similar idea. So I, I definitely see that there in in the Guardians of the Louvre, as well as the Zoo in Winter. Yeah. I think the past in general seems to be of interest to Taniguchi. Yeah. Even a book like this, you know, being set in the past, even though he wrote it in the early 2000s, there's something about it where it feels like he, as an author, is looking back towards a sort of bygone era. That makes sense. And a lot of his stories, too, I think, have a lot of gentleness and contemplative elements. Not only things about memories and nostalgia, but I think just being able to appreciate the finer details in life, ordinary details that are easily overlooked and tend to be disregarded in most other circumstances. But I feel like the way that he tends to center his artwork around so many simple things not just uh and by things i'm just saying like interactions or just scenes of like people walking through locations it just feels like there's so much of a an emphasis on that or you just see it happen so many times in his stories where it, it ends up taking on this contemplative meaning where it gives you as a reader room to ponder and contemplate stuff yeah it's a really what's the word it's it's work that is very self-reflective yeah and meditative and those qualities really show in it and yeah i that 
again, that just goes back to what I was saying earlier about just how if you really allow yourself to immerse yourself in the experience, I think it's something that will allow you to, like you said, just view even mundane activities a little differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to share a brief synopsis of A Zoo in Winter before we dive into our detailed and spoilery book discussion? Sure. Um, you know what? I, let me just read the back of the book. I think okay, it would probably do a better job of explaining it than I could. So, The Pleasure of Drawing, Kyoto, 1966. The young Hamaguchi is working for a textile manufacturer whilst dreaming of becoming an artist. When an incident at the zoo involving the boss's daughter forces his hand, he moves to Tokyo at the invitation of an old friend who also arranges an interview at the studio of the famous mangaka Shiro Kondo. Here, he quickly discovers both the long hours of meeting studio deadlines along with the nightlife and artistic haunts of the capital. For the first time ever, Multi-award-winning Taniguchi recalls his beginnings in manga and his youth spent in Tokyo in the 60s. It is a magnificent account of his apprenticeship where all the finesse and elegance of the creator are united to illustrate those first emotions of adulthood. Yeah. Very well said. Very well said by you, Albert. (laughs) (laughs) Very well written. It's a coming-of-age story that's also about making comics. I like it, man. Yep, that's perfect what are your, Yeah, what are your spoiler-free overall general thoughts of the work? I liked it. Having read Guardians of the Louvre a while ago, as I said, it's not something that I really remember too clearly now. But the one thing that I do remember about Guardians of the Louvre was just a general sense of the vibe and feel of the book. That's probably the thing that I appreciated the most about that. And Mm -hmm. having read A Zoo in Winter, I think there's certainly more plot and story involved here. The aspect of it where you are viewing experiences from his actual life, that's stuff that I eat up. So I do enjoy autobiographical or semi-autobiographical stories in that sense. And, you know, just going back to the 1960s, it's, it's a period of time that I clearly wasn't alive in, but to view the world through his eyes, it's... Yeah, it, there's something special about that and intimate, and I, I I thoroughly enjoyed the reading of this book. Yeah, same here, man. I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. I liked it a whole lot. I'm a big fan of his artwork. His drawing style is excellent. I think the way he does his backgrounds and all the details, it's just so immersive. Like I, I don't really know if he used a lot of assistance or like what his process was. But regardless, I I just think that the final 
drawings on the page always look excellent. Like there's just nothing really that ever looks out of place. His characters have great acting, like uh-huh. their face from their facial expressions to their body language that conveys so much. Um yeah, and the the just the detail and realism of all the backgrounds, it, it's just so immersive and it, it yeah. captures my attention. Even the little manga within the manga, the the story, the manga that the main character draws, like it's drawn in this different style that's like trying to Cartoon-y. be yeah, like he's trying to draw in this not quite amateurish style, but he's trying to it's like this really really talented skilled artist is trying to draw from the point of view of a lesser skilled artist, you know. <laughs> it's kind of funny to see him do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I did want to mention that speaking of his art it's a style that's more realistic than most manga that people are accustomed to seeing. I think most certainly most shonen manga if you think about it tends to be pretty over the top, pretty wild, pretty exaggerated and what I do appreciate about his work is just how subdued it is and it's realism and yeah that's for for those of you that enjoy something like dragon ball or one piece or whatever i i would hope that you could come to this and learn something mm-hmm. about you know different kinds of manga that you can enjoy outside of Super Saiyans or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think quite a bit of his work was published in Seinen magazines. Uh, but according to Wikipedia, they actually classify his works under Gekaga, which is kind of this... It's like the alternative... Oh, <laughs> it's what? Nothing. Nothing. Go ahead. It's like the alternative uh, comics version of manga. Cause okay. Because manga, I think if you look at the uh, word itself in Japanese in the and the kanji, it, it means like whimsical pictures, but gekaga means dramatic pictures, which is it's meant to convey like a more adult-oriented or artistic sensibility. So stuff like your Yoshihiro Tatsumi's or Tarao Suge's, you know, that would be gekaga and you know, Tezuka drew some adult-oriented comics that would probably fall in that category also. Makes sense. You got anything else, or you think you're ready to jump right in? Yeah, let's jump right into the book. So I guess at this point, this is our spoiler warning. So anyone who doesn't want to be spoiled, you know, pause (laughs) the recording and read the book for yourself. We highly recommend it. We encourage it. It's a great piece of work. And uh, I guess we're going to do our thing, man. We're going to do our, what is it? It's a seven-chapter story, right? So we'll yep. we'll just cover it chapter by chapter and provide some a synopsis of the chapter and, and some commentary of each one. Yep, sounds good. Ooh. All right. Chapter one, A Zoo in Winter. December 1966, we are introduced to Hamaguchi a young man living in Kyoto, working for a fabric wholesaler 
In his spare time, he goes to the zoo to sketch the animals. One day, he is introduced to Miss Ayako, the boss's daughter. There's a lot of gossip surrounding her. She is a divorcee whose marriage fell apart because of her infidelity and residual feelings for her former lover. Hamaguchi is tasked with chaperoning her around town because of her father's distrust of her. The two spend more time with one another, seemingly becoming closer. She even gets to look at Hamaguchi's art, giving him words of encouragement. One day, she asks to go to the zoo with him. Deep down inside, Hamaguchi is intrigued by this invitation. When that day finally arrives, the two stroll through the park, but Ayako seems to be in a rush, hardly paying any attention to her surroundings. She then runs up and embraces a man in the park, and it is in this moment that Hamaguchi realizes that he's been used. Miss Ayako had it planned out all along and took the opportunity of their meeting to meet her lover and elope. In spite of it all, Hamaguchi isn't mad, but he is left alone and the experience has left him, has left an impact on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess one of the first things that I want to mention about this story is the semi-autobiographical nature of it. Because from what I know about Jiro Taniguchi's life, he, before he became a manga assistant, he worked as a clothing wholesaler, com- or he worked in a clothing wholesaler company, which is, I guess, similar to textile wholesaler company like you can see the connection being drawn there uh-huh. and uh like I, I don't know like how exactly how much of this is based on his life and how much of it is fictionalized so if i if i were to guess i would probably just guess that the main character hamaguchi's situation kind of reflects Taniguchi's life um, just in terms of being in a job where he didn't necessarily love it or, you know, have strong affection for what he was doing. And uh, someone who always had a passion for sketching and drawing, thereby, you know, going to the zoo all the time and just sketching and continually improving those skills. Uh, I... I have no idea if that situation with the boss's daughter is something that he based on a real incident. I mean, it. if I were to guess, I, w- I would guess that that was something that was for the story. Like some of the more, I guess, dramatic elements right. um, throughout, are, I would guess, are part of the fiction of it. But certainly, like, the, the basic uh, starting point of the main character and then a lot of the sort of behind-the-scenes manga stuff in the later chapters, I would guess, are based directly on his real experiences. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little sensational and, like you said, dramatic. Cause, but, hey, people lead interesting lives. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's something that happened to him or not. That's... It's not out of the realm of possibility. Exactly. Sure. Like exactly. if that really did happen to him, I could believe it, and I'll yeah. be like, "Wow, man, your book totally wrote itself." Because that's a pretty <laughs> gripping first chapter. Like that. Yeah. Like, if if this were just a short story and there was no more to it, 
I would be pretty satisfied just reading this, you know, like yeah, satisfied yeah. in the sense that wow, that was something that made me think, you know, like that that got me. Yeah. Like I'm glad that we got the rest of the story to see what happens to Hamaguchi over the next after it. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. after it. But on its own, I think this is a really good single chapter. Just the note that it ends on is so it's so punchy, man. Yeah. Especially when you look at it in the context of a coming of age story. That's what's more coming of age than beginning the than having feelings for someone and then ultimately, you know, finding out that you were betrayed by those feelings, but learning something from it nonetheless. Right? It's Yeah. I like I don't know if my reading of that is accurate, but I do think that. Do you think part, you had a crush on Ayako? I don't know if it was anything quite as powerful as a crush, but I do think that he had the stirrings of feelings. And when you're a young man and you're out in the world for the first time, you're that's the that's the idea behind it, right? Is that yeah. you're experiencing a lot of things all at once, and that includes meeting various people that will leave an impact on you, including romantic relationships or even potential romantic relationships. So yeah, it's like I said, what's, what's, what's more coming of age than falling in love or maybe falling in love with someone only to realize that it's nowhere near what you thought it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is that one scene when he's accompanying her to uh, a shopping center. I, I think they were like on the way back and she convinced on the way back from somewhere else. And she convinced him to uh, stop by after he makes a delivery to stop by a, a store. And then they're in this, clothing store and she's looking at women's undergarments and she mean panties <laughs> yeah 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 that's yeah that's what they're called <laughs> and and then she she shows him one and she's like how about this like it and then he's kind of bashful when he looks at it and then she starts laughing at him uh you're so innocent do you have a girlfriend and he says yes i do in my hometown like did you take him at face value at, or did you just assume that he was saying that to look cool? That's the thing. Uh, at, at the time I, I took him at face value, but it was, I was just so caught up in my reading of this book that I even forgot until just now that that was his response. So, you know, knowing what I know of everything else that happens in the book, it's like, Oh, wait, so you didn't have a girlfriend. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I have a girlfriend. She's she's going to college in 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 Canada. <laughs> right. Yeah, but this is I don't know if this woman is older. I assume that she's a little older, but she's yeah. spending a lot of time with him and she's kind of intrusive in the sense that she's bold and not quite as a 
afraid of boundaries as Hamaguchi is. And she's, I think, I think for a lot of young men, we, we would probably view it the same way. Wait, wait, we, are we still young, Albert? When we were young. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) We would still view it that same way. Uh, Well, okay, I, I don't know what your personal thoughts on it were, are, but, you know, there were women in my life who, at the time, I thought they were expressing interest, but they were just, you know, just being themselves, right? I I took signs of... Uh, you thought uh, someone being friendly was an invitation for you to grab her by the hair and pull her towards your face and <laughs> mash your lips on hers? Oh, man. There have been so many court cases. <laughs> <laughs> but I I I understand Hamaguchi's reading of this situation, right? Cuz she's interest she's I think you could view it as her just being conversational, but I could also see how he would look at this and take it as oh, she's showing interest in me, right? And Eventually, as the relationship develops, it becomes a thing where she starts to ask him to see his art, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that's deeply personal for him, I imagine. Something that he doesn't necessarily share with everyone. And for her to want to see it and to compliment him on it and give him words of encouragement especially since that's something that's such a strong part of his identity. It's, it's kind of intimate. It's very intimate. And mm-hmm. it absolutely makes sense, my reading of it, that he would develop some feelings for her. Because at one point, she, when, when she first asks him to go to the zoo, up to that point, everybody's kind of ragging on him. And they're like, why do you get to go hang out with her? And his excuse is, oh, you guys are all playing baseball all the time, so I'm the only one that's available to chaperone her around town. But, you know, secretly, deep down inside, he's 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 into the idea of seeing her. So when she asks him to go to the zoo, the next day, it starts snowing, and, you know, all the guys are like, oh, yeah, you got out of it. You don't have to go take her out anywhere anymore. So you can go and hang out with the rest of us, with the rest of the fellas, right? And he he admits in his interior monologue that he was a little uh, disappointed, disappointed by that. <laughs> disappointed by that whole thing. And you know, to his surprise, when she shows up and she she's she says to him, "We had an appointment." It it puts a little pep in his step. It makes him feel, you know, a little giddy, I imagine. He's a like pepper in his stepper. A little pepper in his stepper. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, yeah, I'm going out on a date with this girl. Sweet. <laughs> and then only to see her run up to this other dude. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> but but it's a heck of an ending, right? Because he, he says it right here. He says, but for some reason, I wasn't the least bit mad. But rather, in that moment, I thought that contrary to rumor, this man, Tsuruta, seemed okay. And then there's an image of him looking up at the snow. 
And then the next panel after that is just him in a wide field. And it goes, I was left all alone once again. Yeah, that's a beautiful page to end the chapter. A beautiful last couple panels. The whole scene, the whole sequence, uh, starting from like page, I don't know, 32 to the to 36 here when they're at the zoo. It's just so well paced and so well drawn. They're just he and Ayako are just walking in the snow, uh, in the zoo, and then once. That man, Suruta, is in the distance. They kind of look at each other and make eye contact. And then Ayako takes a few steps towards him, then turns back and looks at Hamaguchi and says, forgive me, and then goes over to her man and they embrace and walk away. <laughs> it's like, yeah. man, the, just the pacing of these panels. There, there's not, it's not overwritten. It's not... Um, super melodramatic or anything it's it just looks like real people the way that they would yeah be in that kind of situation you know yeah i I think there's an argument for how certain real people would flip out under those circumstances but i think it's equally as common that people would just kind of take the l and be dejected yeah so and that's something that resonates with me yeah I, it resonates with me too. It's a realistic response. Totally. Yeah, I've taken many L's in my life, and I've been dejected many times. So looking at that last panel, man, that's <laughs> that's very familiar. Uh, man, <laughs> <laughs> why you gotta do this, to me, Drew? <laughs> I'm not doing anything that the comic ain't already done. You I ain't sad, doing anything that life ain't done to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, were there any other scenes that you wanted to talk about? Um, maybe some of the stuff in the beginning of the story before he kind of sets out on this story of growth. But when he's in the beginning and you see him just living this life, working for a textile company that he doesn't really seem super enthusiastic about. Uh, there, uh. There's some interesting stuff uh, just in the way that Taniguchi draws his draws uh, Hamaguchi's eyes. Like there's a lot of scenes when he's working or in a surrounded by his coworkers where I guess my reading of it is that like he his body language is more restrained and and more uh, kind of like a mannequin just going through the motions. And then when you get to a scene uh, like on page 19, when she's looking at his art, like there's almost a life that kind of creeps into him. Like some of the panels where, where he's like scratching his head, kind of, kind of shy or I don't know, bashful about showing her his art. I feel like, that's some pretty good acting right there. Like just something subtle where his, his arm is, or his hand is uh, on the back of his head. And then, you know, he just seems kind of surprised the way that his eyes are drawn in, in the scene. It's, it's good stuff, man. Yeah. I think I enjoy a lot of the subtle character acting in the story. Yeah. 
I do like the stuff in the earlier, earlier portion of the chapter as well, in the sense that here is a guy who clearly has a talent and has this desire to do more with it, but he, like a lot of people, is just a guy doing a job to make ends meet just to survive, right? He's mm-hmm. doing what's practical for him. And you're right. You can see that in the stiffness of his body in the early chapters and just how how bland he is. And it's not... It's an intentional blandness that's built into this story, which, oddly enough, doesn't make it bland, if that makes any sense. You yeah, know? I get what it's, you're saying. It's it's Jiro, it's uh, Taniguchi's ability to capture that sense of blandness so accurately that in its blandness, you are kind of amazed at how well he is able to convey that to you as a reader. Yeah, as an artist, he really succeeds in capturing the mundanities of life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there might be some people who don't necessarily get that, but that's a pretty special talent to be able to really communicate these things to you, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You need that ability to tell a story effectively when yeah. you're doing something grounded and realistic. Exactly. Especially since this is a story about a coming of age, right? He mm-hmm. has to begin here in order for you to see that transition to where he ultimately ends up being, mm-hmm. right? There, exactly. that, it has to be a stark enough difference and yet subtle enough that you read this and your mind understands it without having to ex- overtly have it said out loud, I am a boring guy. <laughs> I wish I could be more and not be boring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You ready to move on to chapter two? I am ready. Chapter two, Spring Beginnings, February 1967. Hamaguchi travels to Tokyo to visit his friend Tamara. We learn that since the incident with Miss Ayako, his workplace has become difficult, and he's been considering quitting. Tamara takes him to a manga studio and introduces him to a few of the mangakas and studio employees who are hard at work. What began as an informal what began as an informal introduction very very quickly becomes a work opportunity as their workload and impending deadline caused them to take Hamaguchi on the spot, immediately throwing him into the thick of it. He works through the night and is introduced to various individuals that will form and shape his outlook of the industry. After the long night's work, Hamaguchi has dinner with Mr. Morikawa, Moriwaki, sorry, who gripes about the working conditions and about how continuing to work there would ultimately stagnate his career. By the end of the night, he announces his resignation and tells Hamaguchi to look after things. The news stuns Hamaguchi as they go their separate ways. The next morning, Hamaguchi meets with Mr. Kondo. They go to the bathhouse to discuss arrangements for his new job, 
Hamaguchi informs Mr. Kondo of Mr. Morawaki's quitting. Uh, quitting, and Mr. Kondo responds with a knowing statement about how much love for manga Mr. Morawaki has. The two arrive at the studio, and Hamaguchi is surprised to find Mr. Morawaki working like nothing's wrong. Hamaguchi takes it all in and contemplates everything. A month later, he quits Watanabe Commercial and moves to Tokyo. He will spend the next five years at the studio. Yeah, this chapter gives us our first taste of that sort of behind-the-scenes manga life in the studio where you get a, a really good sense of how labor-intensive the work itself is. You get an understanding of why burnout happens with these crazy deadlines and everyone's you know, rushing and working hard to get stuff done. It's not an easy task, and I don't think that the decades have made it any easier or more forgiving. There's still a lot of creators who, you know, they they do have struggles with health just because they're working so hard. And it's, yeah. It's, it's an intense industry. It is, sure. man. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is fun in the sense that comics, comics obviously being a thing that we enjoy, it's always a fun experience to get a peek behind the curtain to see how things are done what and how things are made. But I think additionally, the bit of context that he adds is just what the working dynamics is like for these characters. They're all, I, I wouldn't say they're quirky, but they're memorable and they're unique in and of mm-hmm. themselves. And it's, entertaining to watch them interacting with one another it makes it feel like a real studio filled yeah. with real people yeah it does yeah i have another comment about that and i don't know if it's specifically related to this particular chapter or just the entire book as a whole but one thing that i I think I'll yeah I think I'll say that my interpretation of Taniguchi's depiction of this manga studio is that it doesn't really feel judgmental like I don't feel like he's saying this is the wrong way to work it's unhealthy and or that uh it feels matter you know, of fact yeah it's matter of fact it doesn't feel like he's trying to create a story that repudiates these kind of working conditions. Yeah. It also doesn't feel like he's praising it either. It doesn't feel like he's saying, yeah, this is this is how comics are made and it's the only way that things should be done. It, it's, it's like you said, it, it's just matter of fact. Yeah. You know, this is how it is. I'm presenting it to you the way that it was back then. Yeah. And this is reality with all of the warts. Um, and again, you know, there is fun and satisfaction to be had in the act of creating mm-hmm. but yeah there's also a lot of labor and grind and just grueling menial kind of tasks that can lead to burnout and uh you know mental health or even physical health issues but yeah it's just you know this is just how it is and it doesn't really feel like the story is making 
uh, commentary to either argue for or against it one way or the other. Yeah. I will say that the one part of the story that jumps out at me in this, or the one part of the chapter that jumps out at me is the story, is the part about Mr. Moriwaki, where Mm -hmm. after they finish their thing, uh, after they finish their deadline, him and Hamaguchi go out and they're having a late night dinner and he's just talking about what it means to work at this studio and how he has these greater aspirations. And he basically says, I can't be the assistant here forever. I, I want to do more with my career. And by the end of the conversation, he's just saying, Here's the key to the office. I quit. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, and I think up to this point, I want to say that he said that he'd, he'd been working as an assistant for six years and all he really does is like backgrounds, but obviously he wants to be a mangaka in his own right, and that absolutely makes sense. And then when when Hamaguchi is meeting with I forget his, how to pronounce his name, uh, uh, Mr. Kondo. Yeah, Kondo, the Kondo. main creator of the manga that they all work on. Yeah, when he's sitting with him the next morning, they're talking with each other, and he's basically saying. More walkie, he quit. So, you know, I, I don't know what you're going to do about that and whatnot. And it's interesting to see Kondo just give him this look like, oh, that again. You know, he yeah, <laughs> he's aware of what happened and he's going, and, and this is what he said. He's just got the sickness again. In spite of appearances, Murawaki and Fujita both love manga so much they can barely stand it. I do too, but we're all chasing our dreams. This may be an exaggeration, but the studio is a place that spins out dreams. Maybe the place is haunted because there's something mysterious that possesses people in places of creation. That's Mm -hmm. why we get so many weirdos that show up here. Once they've (laughs) set foot inside the place, it's damned hard to get them out. I think you'll understand what I mean soon enough. And then right after that, they go into the studio and he's right there sitting, you know, right back where he's right back where he started Moriwaki's there acting like nothing was different exactly exactly <laughs> it just made me think of that jack kirby quote comics will break your heart <laughs> yeah totally man yeah i think that's true in in any culture that's just in any comics art. Is, com, yeah comics is the universal heartbreaker yeah in any form of art where you're making yourself vulnerable and putting your heart out there for the world to essentially judge you and you're not always going to get the response that you want back in return and you might never get the response you want back in return you for all we know you'll you'll never be happy with it no matter what because there's always one further step or one further acknowledgement or one other thing that you could have done to make your work better mm-hmm. and it's just it's just that perfectionist in you that's always going to make it an imperfect experience but yeah. and yet you do it all again nonetheless day in day out because 
you've got the sickness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the scenes I also wanted to highlight is the scene that begins on page 60. And this is the scene right after Hamaguchi has that late night dinner with Moriwaki after he gives him the key to the studio. But after the older artist gives Hamaguchi the keys and heads off into the night, you get this sequence of Hamaguchi alone by himself with his thoughts, walking through the city and heading back to the studio, which definitely feels like a Taniguchi scene. It totally reminds me of what I was saying uh, earlier in the episode when I was speaking about various recurring qualities that I see in his work, because it's another contemplative scene of a guy walking around lost in his thoughts, and you as the reader get a chance to inhabit that space and view the world as he's viewing it. It's really well done like it's even the writing itself the in his internal monologue i think does wonders in establishing this kind of melancholy tone and thoughtful tone here I'll, i'm just gonna read some of it and you can just for for you listeners if you haven't read it you can just imagine our hero Hamaguchi just walking alone in the night and he's thinking I was left by myself. I had no choice but to go back to the studio. And then he arrives in the studio and he takes this contemplative look at all the empty chairs and all the uninhabited desks. And he thinks, the deserted studio, the bustling period gone, the place had a sad, lonely atmosphere, like it had suddenly become an empty husk. It was an uncanny space, but... For some reason, I felt a peculiar sense of relief. It's just interesting, man, to me to see it, um, see the sequence. And then like the next page, he's asleep on the couch and there's still a little bit more panels devoted to that. Where I feel like other storytellers would probably gloss over a scene like this. Like it's interesting to me to see that Taniguchi spends about three pages on this whole sequence of essentially the protagonist walking around to the setting, the main setting of the story, falling asleep and just being lost in his thoughts the whole time. Like it, it feels like an a faster paced story would have just glossed over it, you know, like we would have just seen him uh maybe go back to the studio and then fall asleep and then wake up and that that could have been done in like a single page or or even less than a page if you really wanted to but for some reason man Taniguchi makes us inhabit the headspace of his protagonist and I I think being able to slow down and take that extra time to let the story breathe to let the character have a spotlight on his solitude, it adds quite a bit to the work. It adds a lot to the mood and the tone and the texture of it. Yeah. I I don't necessarily feel like this is one of those comics where Tokyo as a city, as a setting, necessarily plays a character. But I do like 
when comics and manga do do things like that where they give you a glimpse of the world through various panels and give it a sense of life and mm-hmm. you know a sense of space i guess so I, I i do enjoy stories when they do that yeah it definitely makes it immersive mm. Oh yeah, another thing that I wanted to uh, ask you about, and this is uh, something that really jumped out at me because the because of the decision to flip the manga for an English orientation. <laughs> but how did you think of, or how did you feel about seeing everybody draw with their left hand? <laughs> like everybody's left-handed in this world. It's interesting. Huh. <laughs> you everybody's know? using their chopsticks with their <laughs> left hand. That's see that's that's a sign of just how detail oriented you are because I wasn't thinking about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't give you left-handed pride? Uh no. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> Not everything is a community, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there a, a Simpsons episode where Ned Flanders opened a left-handed store? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and for whatever reason, at the end of the day, for whatever reason, they were about to get closed down. And at the end of the day, there were enough left-handed people in the city that they were able to save them from foreclosure. <laughs> <laughs> Just from buying tchotchkes, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Cartoon logic. <laughs> you uh, want to move on to chapter three? Sure. Let's move on. All right, let me get this going. Chapter 3, Drawing a Nude. May 1967. Hamaguchi has been working as an assistant for a month, and he's been getting settled in Tokyo. He and Tamura meet up, and he has a special surprise for Hamaguchi. They are going to be drawing female nudes at a college art class. The experience is all very stimulating and exhilarating for Hamaguchi. This is the first time he's ever drawn a female nude, and he is left flustered, but also inspired and captivated by the female form. At the end of the class, he is surprised to find out that the model is Tamara's girlfriend. He's embarrassed by the realization. Tamara introduces him to another friend, Misako, and they all go out to have a night on the town. After a meal and some drinks, Tamara and his girlfriend part ways, and Hamaguchi and Misako continue on. The rest of the night is an alcohol-fueled journey into the artistic underbelly of Tokyo's nightlife, filled with drinking, dancing, and discussions about art. At one point, Hamaguchi dances with a tall woman whom he finds out later is a cross-dressing man. It's a night filled with laughter and stories. Hamaguchi blacks out and awakens the next morning and is filled in on the previous night's shenanigans. He walks out into the world and is filled with a sense of comfort. Yeah, I I like this chapter. It's if we go back to the idea of this being a coming of age story, this is kind of the moment that he for the better lack of a term breaks bad in a sense, right? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. So he goes out into the world and he goes from being this I guess, sheltered country mouse type 
to to really immersing himself with other creatives he he gets super drunk he goes out and he meets all these other creative types from singers and other artists and they just really go wild out you know just talking about artistic theory and appreciation and it's a good time it's a little chaotic but by the end of the night he he awakens from his alcohol fueled you know just uh roller coaster ride and he ends up walking out into a world that he doesn't really recognize but it, it's it's that moment where the the small small town fella goes out and is just happy and appreciative of what this new world has to offer him. Yeah. I like the uh, folk singer dude at that bar he yeah. visits. That guy made me laugh. <laughs> He's a character. Pretty pretty ridiculous. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't imagining what kind of music he was playing when, when, uh, when he was on the stage. Based on his look, it, for all I know, uh, Tanaguchi could have been playing it straight and he could have been a really great musician, but there's also a chance that he's just kind of a goofy hippie singing yeah. old protest songs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's definitely something pretty amusing about the lyrics he was spouting as well. Yeah. Heck, there's that one moment even before he starts playing his music when he's just talking to uh, Misako and Hamaguchi. He's just smoking a cigarette on page 82. And he says, despite my appearance, what I do to is, what I do is expose the world to the sadness and suffering of living <laughs> for those people of integrity who are marginalized by a society of deceptions. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so self-important <laughs> yeah yeah typical <laughs> but hey man isn't that exactly what we do on our podcast we are the light of truth baby exactly <laughs> this guy sings our tune i did also want to talk a little bit about the moment where he's actually drawing nude that mm -hmm. moment where he goes into the class and it's i i understand how that could be this incredibly conflicting moment because on the one hand you're you're there's and there's a quality of lust obviously apparent he's he's there and this is the first time he's watching or looking at a naked woman i imagine outside of you know a magazine or something i guess right mm -hmm. so there's there's an element of desire and lust that's obviously present in his interior monologue but at the same time i'm captivated by just how he's inspired so much by the art too it's almost it's it's almost like it's not just that the nakedness of this woman is the thing that's exhilarating him it's also the the chance for the actual art itself the chance yeah. to draw her that's yeah. the thing, you know. So all Drawing these something different, 
drunk exactly new yep exactly so all these different feelings are just swirling around in his mind and they're just infusing him with life and excitement it's 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 a tasteful way to discuss the topic i think right yeah and it does also kind of show you um or it i guess it reinforces to us how young he is and Mm -hmm. how all of these conflicting emotions kind of mingle with each other in his mind yeah yeah i mean it makes sense that it would be so complicated because on a biological level he's obviously feeling things about this woman this attractive woman but on an intellectual level he's also feeling these other feelings that are just a chaotic jumble in his head Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. and you know i i can honestly say that most people would probably not be able to show that level of self-restraint i have a feeling that most people would probably show up and just kind of giggle and you know say something like titmouse (laughs) (laughs) you know is that what you did in art class (laughs) i've never i don't think i've ever been in a art class where i've got where i've gotten to see i don't trust myself to be mature enough to behave appropriately (laughs) (laughs) you guys had an art class like that either boobies (laughs) boobies yeah but there is something kind of innocent about it too uh just the idea that he was so caught up in the drawing of of this figure right Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that innocence continues to get highlighted throughout the rest of the chapter because when they go when he goes to the bar with misako and meets all these people it starts to feel like he's trying to uh trying extra hard to compensate so that people don't think that he's a kid right like he's trying to drink more and act like he belongs uh even though he's clearly getting drunk he's like no i'm I'm feeling pretty good i'm all right yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's this one oh go ahead yeah uh, no i was just gonna again uh reiterate that he he's acting like he feels so good but then uh when he when they finally get to that club he's like all sorts of messed up yeah <laughs> he's just swirling baby yeah even the art uh changes it's it's pretty interesting to see uh, it's psychedelic man yeah exactly even though it's black and white there's still a, a level of that psychedelic uh style to it yeah absolutely it's it's cool that you can still tell that that's what it's going for in spite of not having the color scheme. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. I wanted to talk about the page prior to that. After they go to the bar, they go out into the night and they, they're they club hopping at this point. And there's these three panels on page 89 uh, where you're watching the world as he's viewing it through alcohol goggles and just the effect with the lights and the swirling lights. I thought that was pretty cool looking. And just the expression on his face as he's just on cloud nine, you know? Yeah. It looks like he's having a blissful time. Yeah, exactly. I I like that page. 
Yeah, that that was definitely something that stood out. Yeah. And yeah, it's just a a, a scene that's full of shenanigans. It's it's maybe not quite as well, it's definitely not as dumb as something like American Pie or something like that, right? Or or as lowbrow or as distasteful, but he mm-hmm. he just did what young men or young people do, you know, when they get the opportunity to go out and have fun and kind of lose themselves in the moment, and they just shenanigans. Like I said, there these uh, these things happen, and they make for stories, great stories. And I do believe that that is something that probably came from Jiro Tanaguchi's actual experience. It's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that you can look back on and kind of chuckle about and be like, man, what was I thinking back then? <laughs> yeah. As uh, the character Kikuchi says on page 94, it doesn't matter. You need to experience a whole load of stuff to write powerful manga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So again, if, if that was a thing that had really happened to him, I w- in, in terms of all the things in this manga, if we were to parse it out in terms of whether it did happen or didn't happen, I I wouldn't be surprised if that was something that that was more on the side of it did happen. Yeah, it's certainly presented and depicted with a sense of authenticity. And I do love the just the last page of it, where after this night of just all sorts of things going on, it's just him walking out into this world. And even though he's really close to where he's supposed to be, it's almost unrecognizable to him. And it's mm-hmm. almost like he's entered the world with new eyes. Yeah, even the way that the people are drawn in the background as he's walking, the the way that they're kind of like only partially detailed, uh, it really sets him apart and makes it feel like, yeah, he's just been through this sanctifying experience you know (laughs) (laughs) like this was his moment where like he wakes up and everything is different he's different now like everybody else is mundane (laughs) and half detailed but he's like got everything he's alive (laughs) exactly nice you ready to move on to chapter four let's check out chapter four chapter four Big Brother. September 1967. Hamaguchi has been in Tokyo for six months working as a mangaka's assistant. Hamaguchi gets a call from his older brother that opens up the floodgates of his thoughts and emotions. We learn more about Hamaguchi's life, how his father died at a young age, and how his older brother stepped in to fill the paternal role left by his father's death. Although they are closer in age, Hamaguchi views him almost like a father and we see that he is afraid to disappoint him. We learn that when Hamaguchi took the job at the manga studio, he did it hurriedly, hoping to breeze through that bit of news. It was it all happened so quickly that they are all that his mother and his brother are all worried for him. So upon having this opportunity opportunity, Hamaguchi's brother wanted to check in on him and report back to their mother. Hanaguchi's brother arrives at the studio, asking many questions about his brother's work and his working conditions. And Hamaguchi is 
embarrassed. Afterwards, the two brothers go to dinner discussing various family matters, and it is revealed that Hamaguchi's brother would have wanted to be a mangaka himself had he not had the responsibilities of the older son. He also reveals that he was sent by their mother to implore him to come home. And and he initially felt the same, but he was slowly changing his mind on the subject. Hanaguchi tosses and turns during the night, disturbed at the thought of his brother's sacrifice. A stranger arrives during the night. Mr. Kikuchi comes asking to let a young woman stay momentarily in Hamaguchi's apartment. She has been tracked, oh, tricked into coming to Tokyo and is now being hassled by some men. Mr. Kikuchi and Mr. Kondo want to hide her and hopefully talk the situation down with her harassers. Hamaguchi is concerned about how his brother will take the situation. But to his surprise, his brother decides to go to the bar to see how he can help de-escalate the situation. But before he can head out, Mr. Kondo arrives to tell him all has been resolved, and they all go out for drinks. Hamaguchi sees the side of his brother he has never seen before. By the end of the night, Hamaguchi's brother has a fuller idea of what his life in Tokyo is like, and he assures him that he will tell their mother that he will be okay to stay in Tokyo. And he gives him words of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was another singular chapter that works as, you know, like a solid episode. Like if this were a show or something, I could see this being a pretty memorable episode where the the older brother has a guest star appearance, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah. There's something interesting again about their family because it's another story about someone who loses his father and has a brother instead of a father, you know? Like, I don't know what Jiro Tanaguchi's family history is like or was like if he had a, if he grew up with his father or not, but it's interesting to see that another one of his characters here doesn't or didn't have a father himself yeah yeah it's it's interesting looking at their family dynamics too because his brother steps into the role of his father at such a young age and at one point they mentioned that there's a 10-year difference between the two of them but he's so mature and practical and the idea that he views him as so distant from him, mm-hmm. even though they're they're obviously a family and he clearly respects his brother, right? And in this chapter, he learns so much about his brother, so to the point where when he mentions that had things been different, he would have wanted to give it a try. He would have he did he wouldn't have known if he was gonna be good at it, but just to be able to try, you know? Yeah. And there's something about that sentiment that's, I don't know, it's it's moving a little bit. Yeah, definitely heartwarming. Just the scene, just, uh, I guess, the relationship between the two brothers where they both have this, it's not exactly, I wouldn't say it's uneasy. It's not an uneasy relationship, but it's 
still this relationship where uh, his older brother is 10 years older and acted as kind of this father figure. Yeah. Even though they love each other, there's still a sense where his older brother could be stern and scold him for, you know, being a bad boy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but like a lot of that stuff, I feel comes across because it's internalized inside Hamaguchi's mind. But when they actually interact, it it really does feel like his brother respects him and and treats him like an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Like even though um he was there to check on him on behalf of their mother, it feels like his brother came in with an open mind and he wasn't just gonna drag him and be like, you gotta do what I say or whatever. He he gave him a chance and and what he saw gave him confidence that his brother was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I got a quick question about this chapter. Yeah. So I was writing the notes on the summary, but did they ever mention a name for his brother? That's a good question. Because I felt like so many... I I was skimming the chapter quite a bit after I read it. And the funny thing is, (laughs) skimming the chapter probably took up a bunch of my time in, in writing the summaries. But the whole time I'm like... I thought they had mentioned his name, but I feel like a lot of the times they just referred to him as his brother or yeah, my brother. Like on page 126, he just says, oh, this is my big brother. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't say his, his actual name. I mean, I don't know if that was an artistic choice or, or something, but it is an interesting detail. Yeah. I'm guessing it's because of the translation, right? Like, it's probably... I mean, I, I don't know why he wouldn't say his actual name, but maybe it it could be a, a cultural thing where it's acceptable to say, oh, this is my brother. I don't know. I really don't know, man. Yeah. but I, I really couldn't tell that's you. That's the sort of detail that just makes you ask questions. <laughs> makes you want to, I guess, not necessarily solve the mystery of it, but it's it's... It just sticks out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, One page 126, he's introducing his brother to his boss, basically. And he just says, this is my big brother. And the guy's yeah. like, huh? Your brother? <laughs> yeah, right? Your brother who? Yeah. <laughs> what exactly. do I call him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting that this young girl shows up in the middle of the night with Mr. Kikuchi. Because... Mm-hmm. It's it's another example. I could imagine what it'd be like for Hamagachi to move to this big city, right? Tokyo is kind of this metropolis. And they're from, you know, a smaller town. So it wouldn't surprise me if their view of the big city isn't one that is filled with concern and worry because... The big city is where bad things happen, right? Yeah. And on the first night that he's there checking in on his brother, this young woman shows up, and her story is essentially that friends tricked her into coming to the city, and I think it's implied that they might be trying to pimp her out or something like that. Yeah. I I don't know exactly if that was my reading of it. No, that was the reading I got out of it, too. Yeah, they didn't explicitly say it, but... You kind of got the impression that what they were doing was more than just, hey, baby, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And exactly. Yeah, for this to be... Yeah, this was a good moment for his brother because for this to be the moment where Hamaguchi's all worried that, oh man, this is going to look so bad. He's going to go home. He's going to tell my mom that Tokyo's full of pimps and hewers. And, <laughs> and you know, pimps and what? Hewers. Hewers. <laughs> hewers. And yeah, that Tokyo is just full of pimps and hewers and like they're it's it's just a bad place and they're going to make me come home. And then to see his brother just step up and go, I'm going to go talk to these people. And well, he what he says is he's going to go down there and his brother's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to talk to him. That's mm -hmm. th that's kind of a cool big brother moment right there, especially if you view it from Hamaguchi's eyes where he's just like, Oh, my brother is just this really reserved, uh, stiff, practical guy. Right. And for him to go out there and be willing to step up like that, you, you, you definitely feel like you're learning new things about this guy, but through Hamaguchi's eyes. Yeah. So many things that are communicated implicitly just through the actions of the characters and the things that, the way that they act leads leads them to learn things about each other. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah, that's good storytelling. It's not it's not all explicitly spelled out for us. We just see it happen and we kind of make that inference for ourselves. Yeah. And it's also a chapter that's told in enough of a pace where you believe that his brother's heart is softening. On, on the subject. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't even know if he was necessarily against Hamaguchi being there in the first place. Uh, I, well, I guess he did say he, he, he initially had gone there to tell him to return back to Kyoto, but over time as he the had enough of an open mind. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And he was able to soften on the subject and even encourage his brother. It's a cool. It's a cool. Big brother moment. It is, man. I like it. Some good family stuff. Yeah. You ready to go to chapter five? Let's check out chapter five. Chapter five. A long break. March 1968. The manga Hamaguchi works on goes on a break when Mr. Kondo goes off to America. Ideally, this time would be used by the various staff to work on their own pet projects. But Hamaguchi just spends most of his days messing around with Tamura. It isn't until one night when Hamaguchi stops by the studio that he sees Fujita hard at work. He sees the progress Fujita is making on his own comics and is ashamed of his lack of initiative. After that night, he is driven and works to produce his own manga, but he is stuck. Fujita asks Hamaguchi to go with him to see the editor of Shonen Holiday, Miss Tono. They are in awe of the editorial office during the con during the consultation hamaguchi can feel his envy coming out and although outwardly he is supportive and says nice things his words and actions take a passive aggressive tone later that night they run into mr moriwaki and hamaguchi blame uh, blunt blurts the news about fujita's potential manga 
and Mr. Morawaki also takes a passive-aggressive tone. They all go out for drinks, and as they drink more, Fujiki lets some words slip, saying that he would never be like Morawaki, and a fight breaks out. They go their separate ways. The next morning, Hamaguchi and Mr. Kikuchi discuss what happened the night before and just where Mr. Morawaki is coming from, that he would feel the way he feels. But he also acknowledges just how vital he is to Mr. Kondo. Fujita announces that his manga was ultimately rejected, and he places some blame on Hamaguchi for drawing so much attention to it. The chapter ends with Hamaguchi uncertain of his skills and everyone in the studio returning to their roles. This is a this was an interesting chapter for me because up to this point, Hamaguchi seems like a pretty affable, all-around nice guy. But mm-hmm. it's a chapter that shows that he's capable of of petty jealousy, yeah, and jealousy, right? I I was hesitant initially to say that his actions in the book were passive aggressive because I I was thinking to myself, maybe there's an interpretation of this where he's just, he's genuinely going out and telling the world, Hey, Fuji does doing all this good for him. Right. And that's what was happening in the story. He's every chance he gets, he's telling people, yeah, Fuji does got this comic coming out and he's talking to the editors and la da da, la da da. But mm-hmm. after enough of that, and a- after a while, it it does begin to feel pretty passive-aggressive. And he even admits in Interior that he's envious of this. He's When he sees Miss Tomo, Tono talking to Fujita, he's jealous because this... Att- he's jealous because she's an attractive woman giving him advice. He's jealous that they're both equal in age, but he's so much more driven than he is and so much more further along in his goal to create this manga that he can't help but go out there and tell everybody and you can just feel that tone come out where it's like isn't that great aren't you happy for him (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah yeah i think i did maybe not with the same degree of exuberance and glee that you just said it, (laughs) but I definitely got the same sense that he was saying those seemingly nice things out of a sense of jealousy. Like in a way it was like, he was saying those things to set people up for having really high expectations, which would then be dashed. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to apply all this pressure on Fujita's shoulders to make it feel like, oh, if it doesn't get published, then everybody's going to be like, what happened? And then you're going to, you know, and that's basically what ends up happening on page 160 when uh, Fujita sees him, sees Hamaguchi in the studio and gives him the news that they're not going to be printing or publishing the manga. And he just looks at him and says, how could you do that? You went and told everyone too soon. Yeah. It's... It's just interesting because it's the first scene where you kind of don't like him, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is hard because everything up to this point, he he does seem like a pretty nice guy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, just someone you wouldn't mind knowing or talking to. But I guess that's the thing that adds complexity and realness to it is that he's we're all capable of pettiness. I definitely am. Uh, but, you know, this character, even this character is capable of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, There's no such thing as a perfect person, you know, like everybody, no matter how nice they are, there's there's still some kind of sinful behavior within them that's just lurking to get out even just lurking within their thoughts and coming out in their words yeah maybe hamaguchi didn't do anything physically to like sabotage his colleague but yeah certainly in his heart he did not wish for his friend to have success yeah yeah and even drawing out mr moro morawaki into that entire yeah. altercation that just made a huge mess of the whole thing right and the idea that i understand having this work environment where we're all working together but to some degree maybe an unspoken degree we're all more or less in competition with one another too right whether we acknowledge it or not just in the sense that if we're all trying to become manga cuz there's there's a limited amount of success that can go around and maybe there's some degree of your heart that is just in competition with the people around you and sometimes that can take a deeply personal tone and it slips and it comes out in a way that is hostile yeah yeah and we we definitely see that with Mr. Morawaki, who has even less self-control than uh, yeah. Hamaguchi. Yeah. yeah, it kind of feels like Hamaguchi baited that out from him. Yeah. <laughs> Getting yeah. them into this situation where they would both be drinking a lot and then talking about how, hey, this young guy is about to make his debut. <laughs> yeah. And it's all done under the auspice of, I'm so proud of him. I'm so happy for him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's definitely not his proudest moment for sure. And it's another moment where if this is an autobiographical comic on Taniguchi's part, I I think it'd be an incredibly vulnerable thing to admit. Yeah, surprisingly honest. Exactly. And if you told me that that was a real thing that had happened, I I I don't think I'd be surprised. Yeah, I can easily believe something like that. Yeah. Especially, yeah, especially in that kind of environment. Mhm. The other interesting thing about this chapter that I was considering was this whole thing with Fujita and uh Hamaguchi, right? Mm-hmm. This this whole incident that happens. They don't really address it again after that. They still both work together. And I don't know. There's there's something about leaving it on that tone that's uneasy, but not in a bad way, right? Like, it's it's another admission of just honesty of this thing that happened, this, this moment of weakness on, on his part. And sometimes not everything gets cleared or fixed up. And 
even though we don't necessarily know what their relationship is like after that, and we you could tell yourself that they continued to work in that studio together. I, yeah, I, I, it, it does leave me wondering what they were like with one another, like really after that, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. They were still able to work alongside each other, but I'm sure that had to have affected their friendship. Yeah. Like all yeah. we really get is that brief scene in on page 160 when Fujita says you went and told everyone too soon, and then in the last panel, Hamaguchi says I'm so sorry, yeah. and then you know like a few weeks pass by, and then the story continues. But as far as like really personal direct interaction between the two of them and the rest of the book, you don't really get anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So for for all we know, they could have still been able to work together, but maybe, there could have been uh, a deep seated resentment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And in this story, once once uh, once uh, Ham- Hamasak, uh, I forget his name. Hamaguchi. <laughs> Hamaguchi. Is, is, is Pepper snoring? She's snoring. Yeah. I think I can once, hear. <laughs> she's she's a loud snorer, and she moved across to my other side, so she's even closer to the tablet now. <laughs> All I can do is kind of rub her nose to try to get her to stop. That's funny. But there's a uh, one scene where Hamaguchi begins to work on the manga that he will be working on uh, throughout the rest of the book, and. This is the scene where he draws it in a different style, and I just, yeah, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts on that, the that couple of pages were, where yeah. he's drawing his comic. Yeah, it's good that you brought that up because I was gonna bring it up too. Um, it it's a funny concept, the premise of his story. I feel like that's a story that would work. Now it's an it's isekai like, it's an, Exactly, it's an isekai. <laughs> <laughs> he falls and into the loves world loves his isekais. <laughs> exactly. He the dude the kid falls into the world of a pop-up book. So there there's something simple but fantastical about it. Um certainly feels like something that we would see in a lot of manga or anime today. The drawing style is so different from the rest of the book, which makes sense because Tanaguchi is trying to convey the idea that this is an artist's work, right? Like it's a, it's got to look different from the reality of the characters that we're following. And I like it. Yeah, it's kind of this shonen light sort of style where things are kind of like the anime hair is kind of jagged and the the world is I don't know. We only get a couple panels in in this issue, but I I do think that when we see a little bit more of it in the later chapters, it does have that kind of otherworldly sense to it which makes sense cuz he's in a pop-up book the the way that the architecture of the castle and the plants and trees it it looks like the kid fell into this world where 
um you, you remember that game paper mario oh yeah i remember that yeah kind of reminds me of that oh visually nice i love i love the look of it it was so unique yeah did you have any thoughts about the manga within this manga I just think it's a testament to his talent to be able to draw in these different styles within the confines of his own book, right? It's mm-hmm. you you mentioned it already, but it is pretty neat that he is able to switch between these two styles to communicate the differences and uh yeah, I I I have a I have a hearty appreciation of it. The funny thing about it is that image of the boy in the comic on page 140, that first panel, that that image of the boy is on the spine of the book. Oh, (laughs) I (laughs) didn't even realize that until you mentioned it. Yeah, (laughs) that's an interesting touch. I do like how later on as the as the rest of a zoo in winter uh, progresses the story of Hamaguchi's manga kind of takes on this second mirrors. Meta- yeah, it kind of works as a metaphor for what's going on. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Whispers of the Heart by mm. uh, by Studio Ghibli and how Studio Ghibli oh, or not Studio Ghibli how Whispers of the Heart was the story about this young girl writing this fictional story about these characters and then eventually studio ghibli ended up putting out that other anime that actually uses the characters in that story the cat returns the cat returns right right yeah that's a neat little gimmick those man yeah yeah whisper of the heart is definitely high up there in terms of my favorite ghibli films yeah it's yeah, I, I, I love it. It's one of the ones I had to own when they started come putting them out on Blu-rays. Mm-hmm. You uh, good to move to Chapter 6? Let's do it. Chapter 6, Wishing on a Star. July 1968. Hamaguchi has been in Tokyo for a year and a half, and he is still suffering from writer's block. Mr. Kakuchi invites Hamaguchi out and introduces him to his lady friend's sister, Mariko. She is an avid reader, and they ask Hamaguchi a favor. Uh, they ask a favor of him to come visit with her from time to time. She's currently sick and staying at the local hospital, and she could use the company. He begrudgingly agrees. But shortly after their first meeting, they develop a rapport, sharing a love of stories. Mariko eventually spends time talking through Hamaguchi's writer's block. He is now more inspired and writing with a passion, promising to see his manga when it is done. But after some time, Mariko falls ill and leaves the city, telling Hamaguchi that she valued their time together, but she doesn't want him to see her in a weakened state. Hamaguchi is heartbroken and left in a state of heartache, at not being able to see her again. He finally finishes the manga and sends it off to her to read. He laments at the thought of the young woman who helped him to rediscover the joy of creating a story and wonders if she ended up reading it at all. 
so this chapter we see a little bit of romance uh he's been in tokyo for a little bit and even though he's just been pounding his head against the canvas he has yet to make any real progress in this manga and in finding mariko he's able to find this kindred spirit who spends time with him going out on going out on these outings together and through it all they share with each other things about their lives and it's we see this again where he's sharing his artwork which we discussed earlier was just this really intimate deeply personal thing of his so by sharing it with her that's the thing that really allows him to connect with her and the fact that she's able to contribute to his process she really acts as this muse that fires him up and gets him to really make progress on his story mm-hmm. yeah uh, here's here's a question for you albert with like a lot of these stories the potential love interest is like right there in act one or something like that right but right right it's interesting that this came out in act six out of a seven seven act story but it doesn't feel like it was just thrown out there because again you're just viewing this guy's life all the way through and it it feels pretty natural her showing up and developing this relationship with him over the course of 30 pages it it's a testament to his pacing and his storytelling uh that he's able to convince us in only 30 pages that this is actually a pretty convincing relationship yeah that's some really economical storytelling where he's just maximizing the space that he has and it doesn't feel overly dense because it's not like it's not like there are tons and tons of panels or tons and tons of captions on each page it still feels like relaxed pacing but he just does so much with it and whatever few moments that hamaguchi has with mariko they all end up adding up to become meaningful moments you know absolutely but yeah i was gonna ask you a question albert and my question is do you think you would ever fall for a girl who had frail health <laughs> like is frail health a deal breaker for you uh whew. i'd be lying if i said that that's not a thing that i would take into consideration yeah it's it's a hard thing you know at the end of the day y- you feel what you feel so hey who knows right i i i won't pretend or say that it's an impossibility that I could fall in love with someone who is of frail health. But yeah, realistically speaking, I I would I would have to acknowledge that it's it's kind of unlikely. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. If you I would are... have to I would have to really feel something special about her. Yeah. For sure. 
Like if you fall off, fell in love with her right off the bat, then there's nothing you could do about it. You would just deal with the frail health. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. What but again? If, I'd have to really. There would have to be like sparks right at the beginning. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Very mm-hmm. powerful sparks. Yeah. What if you came across on a dating app? What if you saw a girl with a, on her profile? She wrote something like. I've only got seven months to live. Would you pass on her if everything else was your ideal woman? (laughs) What kind of podcast is this? (laughs) I don't don't know, man. I'm just just making conversation here. (laughs) Let me put it this way. I probably would not match with her. If she... I think if she initiated a conversation with me, I would humor it. Heck, I'd even, I I might even go out on a date with her, but I would enter it full well knowing that, or or at the very least, I would enter it telling myself that this isn't going to be anything super serious. Because she only has so much time left to live. Exactly. Exactly. And I might, yeah, I'd probably even tell her just as much, right? Just yeah. I I, I don't mind spending time with you uh, or getting to know you, but if if we had to just be perfectly honest, the you know, it, like I wouldn't want to put you in a position where you could get seriously emotionally hurt by whatever is going on either, you know. Right, right. I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> I'm glad I asked the question. Thanks really? for humoring me. You wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> you don't think you'd you'd have a similar response? I think my response would be similar. Uh, I think if I didn't know about her health issues up front, then I think it would probably be easier to fall for her. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. If I knew about it up front, then I I think... Your card would be up. Yeah, exactly. Because it's... That's a heavy thing, man. It is. It is. And, like, I don't want to be in that position either where I get so attached to this person only to have her die in seven months. Yeah. I mean, I could get a plant. that's right right, folks i just equated human life to (laughs) a plant (laughs) man it's comedy hour with you (laughs) i find that when i take notes it gives me more time to come up with stuff like this (laughs) it leaves my brain feeling fresher where i can just say these sorts of things off the cuff Yeah. Anyway, going back to the actual book itself, we do get more scenes here of the two of them, you know, walking around the city or maybe not necessarily the city, but different sites. And they they go to the. uh, I guess it's a a park or is that the zoo? No, that's the zoo, right? They do eventually go to the zoo. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's cool just to see more of these scenes where they're enjoying the scenery, just immersing themselves in, I guess, yeah, the beautiful sights and, and things. There's there's a scene where they visit a shrine. They're in a little uh, rowboat on a lake, I guess, or something. Um, yeah, I just really enjoy all of these various scenes of seeing them walking around, seeing Mariko look at his art and enjoy this time together. It's There's something soothing and pleasant about it. And then it... It all works to sort of prime you for the hurt later on when she just disappears on him and leaves it to her sister to say that she won't see him again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point, at the end, I had actually thought that Mariko had died and her sister just didn't want to be honest with her. Right, right, right. Did you think that too? Yeah, that was something yeah. that had crossed my mind as well. yeah. Well, the funny thing is, this this reminds me of this anime that we watched last year called Goodbye Donglis. And oh yeah, yeah. We had a discussion about that, and one of the spoiler for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler for Goodbye Donglis. Yeah, one of the things that ends up happening in that is one of the characters ends up dying at the end of it, right? Yeah. And. It was a thing where, at the moment, I, I don't know necessarily where my headspace was at the time, but uh, at the moment, I was I was pretty surprised by that because I was like, wait, when did that happen? <laughs> like, when did this guy end up being sick? And we talked about it, and you were, like, saying that, well, when they told you at the beginning of the story that he was in and out of hospitals, I... I was already set up with the expectation that there was something wrong with him and that he was going to probably die by the end of this thing, right? Yeah. But the funny thing was my interpretation of it was, oh, he was out of the hospital at this point and he was hanging out with these guys, so he must have gotten better. <laughs> you are quite the optimist. That's how I read it. So in, so when I heard that, oh, he was out of the hospital, because I, I don't assume that they just let you out of the hospital if you're still sick. So when I had seen that scene in Goodbye Don Gleese, uh, when we get to the end of the movie and it turns out he was sick all along and he shortly thereafter died, I was like, wait, when did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> but now because of that conversation, whenever I read or watch something where someone was in the hospital, <laughs> I, like, I think you've infected me with that logic so now so when i i read about that here i was like oh i guess she's gonna die <laughs> <laughs> dang uh, ain't that something that is man i didn't expect <laughs> that discussion to leave such an impact on how you consume or interpret fiction i think it was just it's it's just something that it might have been just an off-the-cuff thing for you to say, but the fact that I just remembered it, yeah, I, I'm not saying that it emotionally stuck with me or anything, but whenever I see someone in a hospital in a story now, 
that's the thing that I reference, and then it just makes me think, oh, yeah, I guess this person is gonna die. It's it's <laughs> it's purely association. <laughs> what if the story is about a doctor who works in a hospital? Huh. Do you just assume I, that doctor's gonna die? I assume the doctor's gonna die now. <laughs> you, in the subconscious of my mind, he's gonna die. <laughs> he's constantly in and out of the hospital. <laughs> right, every right. day he goes in and every night he goes home. But so he's constantly we, going back and forth to the hospital. When we get to the end and he doesn't die, I'm really going to be upset. <laughs> How dare you subvert my expectations? <laughs> I also wanted to talk about Hamagachi's just evolution by by this point of the book where yeah. up to this point you, man yeah yeah up to this point he's he's shown some emotion he's clearly capable of it but this is probably where i've seen him the most passionate and well this and the next chapter where you see him the most passionate and the most moved by another human being because even in the chapter where it's his brother it's not like it's not like he had a whole bunch of pathos or he was overly angry or or like his emotions were off the charts or anything it was all still pretty reserved but here when when she exit his life he he kind of loses it a little bit. Like, he's not crazy or anything, but he's definitely more animated than I've seen him up to this point. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's, uh... It's just some good character writing and acting. Yeah. And artwork. And the fact that he... That Taniguchi does this in approximately 30 pages where by the end of it he the way he sets it up where this girl was just such an inspiration to him it's it it goes back to the point that we were making earlier where uh, Hamaguchi is is almost inseparable from the artist right where when he was looking when he was lusting after that woman it was his biological attraction to her that was that was present, but it was also combined with the artist in him. And then here, mm-hmm. he, when he finally meets this girl, it is her ability to connect with him as an artist and a creator. That is the thing that really makes her him fall in love with her. That's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that is the impetus for their for his romantic attraction to her. So. Yeah, it almost feels like he is inseparable from the artist. His his emotional him is inseparable from the artistic him. Yeah, it's really the core of his being. Exactly. The artistic uh, aspect of himself. Yeah. So it makes sense that when he shows pictures to someone, when he shows pictures to Mariko, when he shows pictures to Aiko, that these are just such a deeply personal part of him that he's sharing with these people. Mm-hmm. I just noticed something interesting about his body language 
Going back to that scene earlier at the beginning of the book when he was sharing his artwork with Aiko early on, on page 19, when she's looking at his work, he gets this bashful posture where he has his one of his hands on the back of his head um, because he's a little, you know, embarrassed by it. It's something that's almost too private or personal that he's just kind of nervous about what she thinks about seeing that side of him. Uh-huh. And then uh in this chapter on page 181 when Mariko is waiting with him at the bus stop and she's just being openly honest with him about how she really likes to be with him and treats him feels like he's a real friend, really has fun when he's around and he does that same thing where he puts his hand on the back of his head like and tries to kind of play it off yeah. Um and then even on the next page on 182 when when he reciprocates with his honesty about you know saying that's why I'm drawing the manga it's for you and he tries to laugh it off like almost like he's not serious or he's kind of just making it light but you could tell that he's still nervous about being so open with her you know. Mm-hmm. I I think it's just that catching that similar posture, that kind of nervous tick that I think most people really do have, you know, like when we get nervous, there's certain things that we tend to do. Like yeah, comic actions. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. So yeah, it, it is cool to see that actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that was intentional, if he, if Taniguchi planned it from, you know, like if he had it in his mind, oh yeah, when this character gets nervous, he does this. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Either way, it it works, man. Like when we're when we're diving into the weeds and and like pouring over the comic, that's the kind of thing that that uh ends up standing out for some reason. Yeah. I also just well, I wanted to read that this last page just because I thought it was a pretty well done. It was a pretty well done page where you get just an insight into his mind and into his love of the art he goes what i was so oh uh, where is this 196 mm-hmm. i was so grateful to her she taught me about the fun in drawing manga the joy of creating a story and then it just ends with i wonder if mariko has read our manga and it's him staring off in the distance yeah that's it's, um powerful melancholy feelings right there. Exactly, exactly. But I do think that back to that earlier notion of just how so much of him is the artist tied to the person uh, like this statement here just goes back and just goes back to that idea of where he was, where his state of mind was when he was unable to tell this story. He he knew he wanted to be this mangaka, but he was just unable to achieve it. And the thing about her was that she was able to activate this in him to help him find, you know, the joy of creating a story. And I do think that that's a big part of the underlying theme of this book too is him in search of that 
sense of accomplishment and fulfillment that he gets from creating art. Mm-hmm. That's a good way of putting it, man. Yeah. Speaking of his art, what did you think of the snippets of his manga that we get in this chapter? Like, I'm looking at page 183, and there's some pretty funny scenes here where the protagonist of his story teams up with some animal <laughs> friends. <laughs> I do like the sketchy the sketchy quality of it, the unfinished feel of it, because if he's telling a story that's only partially done, it's a perfect way to capture that. The the way that it's drawn, it it doesn't feel like it's the final product. And again, it's it's this ability for him to meld these different styles in order to show Hamaguchi as almost his own artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. It is some shonen looking stuff though. Like watching this little kid fire ring blasts and having animal friends that helps him out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like and you Pokemon. can already see it's like Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can already see how the his comic functions as a like the I guess an emotional mirror or reflection or metaphor for his own journey. Yeah. It's like a story about a kid who goes to this can- castle but he's beset by numerous ordeals but he becomes uh-huh. stronger and stronger and matures and gains more and more friends and finally he has to save the girl to rescue the girl exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah yeah you ready for chapter seven yeah let's finish it off chapter seven a sunny spot in winter november 1968 hamaguchi is in a zombie-like state now that he's finished his manga he regularly thinks about mariko sorry i can't read my handwriting (laughs) (laughs) word gets out about the manga and miss tono wants to see it hamaguchi doesn't have the original copies as he has sent them to mariko mr kikuchi comes later and has brought back the originals with a note from mariko it is a generic note and hamaguchi doesn't believe she has even read it at all he and mr kikuchi go out for drinks and he gets wasted kikuchi rags on him for being a lovesick kid hamaguchi is a blubbering mess the next day hamaguchi lets miss tono see his manga his manga she is impressed and asks to hold on to the originals hamaguchi goes to the zoo and encounters miss ayako from two years earlier they share with each other about how much their lives have changed over the years, and she marvels at the thought. She now has a child, and at the time, uh, she now has a child, who at the time she was already pregnant with, and she works as a club hostess. She and her husband have their issues, but love keeps them going. The conversation with Ayako fills Ham- Hamaguchi with clarity. He is going to see Mariko. As he sets off to see her, the news comes out. The manga, manga, Wishing on a Star, has been picked up. He gets to the hospital and is elated to see Mariko, but she tells him he has to hurry 
and make some corrections to the manga or it won't be printed at all. Hamaguchi gets ready to leave, but before he does, he hugs Mariko and tells her he loves her. Everybody claps. <laughs> Hamaguchi finishes the manga and it sees publication. The final scene is of Hamaguchi and Mariko sitting on a bench. They are both happy that the manga about the manga and Hamaguchi looks at her thinking about how he wishes he could save her from the hospital the way the characters were saved in the manga. Yeah. I got to admit when I was reading this, when I got uh-huh. to that last panel, I flipped the page and I was like, "Oh, that's the end." Yeah, same here. <laughs> I was I was not prepared for that. I thought there would be something, you know, I, not that it's a bad ending. I just wasn't prepared for it. Yeah, I think I was so engrossed in the story that I just kept on reading mindlessly. I didn't realize that that was the final panel. <laughs> and I was like, Same oh, here. shoot, that was it. <laughs> like, never mind the fact that physically there are only like two pages left in the book. Yeah. But Well, I that was one so... last page could have... It could have been Thanos doing a Thanos snap and making it everything better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I was just so wrapped up into the story that I wasn't even thinking about the page count or anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely want to talk about the ending in a bit. But before we get there, um, probably makes more sense to talk about anything else in the chapter before the final page. Yeah. Were there any things that particularly stood out to you in this chapter? Honestly, the thing that stood out to me the most was him telling her that he loved her. And then everybody clapping, everybody in the hospital clapping. I I liked the ending, but that was something where I was I was thinking to myself and I thought that was a little a little much. <laughs> it was a little, you know. Like something out of a rom-com or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when you were reading your summary, you you definitely, your voice took on a different tone and tenor when you got to that part. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was, uh, it was intentional. (laughs) Yeah, this final chapter puts a really tidy knot on everything that, the story has built up to this point. Um, I think all of the stuff that he's going through emotionally in the beginning of the story or in the beginning of the chapter comes across very well just because of the way that he looks, like the way that he's drawn and his body language and his facial expressions. It's like you were saying earlier, man. He He's going through life like a zombie, essentially, and he's despondent. Uh, he, he doesn't know what's going on with Mariko and then he gets that note and it doesn't even sound like her, you know? Yeah. And then when you get that scene with him and Kikuchi in the bar and then the guys and his, and Kikuchi's like, you think her sister wrote this instead of her? And and it's like, the, he's trying to talk Hamaguchi out of like Doing having something. these feelings. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I really got the idea. Oh, she just dead and and the sister and kikuchi are just trying to hide it from him because they, yeah yeah they think he's too young to know the truth or something because that's i think that's pretty messed up the thought did cross my mind as well <laughs> yeah but fortunately uh that wasn't the case like it the way that he frames it and again i don't even 
there's still a chance that the sister wrote the note in my mind, but yeah. the way that Kikuchi frames it is that she's thinking about her future. She knows that she's not well and she doesn't want to put you through this. She doesn't want to put herself through this. So she's just being distant and communicating in this in a way that might hurt right now, but in the long run will be less harmful to the both of you, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to the both of them. And yeah, so 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 Kikuchi's like, you're just being kind of a lovesick doofus, and she's the one who's being level-headed here. Yeah. We get that scene that takes place in December where we see Hamaguchi walking through the zoo again or not i guess yeah it's the zoo it's, it, well first he's at a park and then he gets to the uh this like tropical bird hothouse i think yeah another great scene of just a person walking around enjoying taking in the scenery and being immersed in his thoughts and at that point we see him have this interaction with a person he hasn't seen for a couple of years, Ayako, from the beginning of the story. And their conversation, again, gives a chance to look back and reminisce on past experiences mm. in order to kind of figure out where to go in the future, you know, just in terms of future steps. I noticed that there's that moment on page 217 where Aiko asks Hamaguchi the question that she asked him in chapter one, do you have a girlfriend? (laughs) And then this time he says, huh? Well, sort of. And he does that thing with his hand again. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yeah, all in all, it was a pretty sweet note to end on. I don't know if I went into this thinking it was going to be a romance story, but yeah, it, it... Tanaguchi does a good job of weaving that element into it, and by the time you get to it, it's still ultimately a coming-of-age story, but it makes sense. By the end of it, he's mature enough to know what he wants, and he goes out and he gets it, and he's comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. comfortable enough in his skin to to understand, you know, the way of the world or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It is a very sweet ending, but I also think that last page has a pretty, to me at least... It's ominous. Yeah, it's ominous. <laughs> yeah. It, it gives me a sense of melancholy, even a sense of foreboding, because yeah. like, the way that it's framed, it almost feels like... The way that the scene is framed, it, it almost feels like this is kind of their last shining moment, you know, sitting yeah. in... Uh, well, I'll just read it. It says... Then it was Christmas, sitting in an unseasonably warm spot, just being there with her was enough. I thought, if it were possible, if only I could rescue her from this hospital, the way it happened in our manga. And it just ends with him, like, gazing at her while she's looking at the manga that was published in the magazine. Yeah. Uh, it, It just gives you the sense that this is the last time that they'll freely be able to enjoy each other in a way right like it feels like she might have something terminal and 
yeah, it's just this sad feeling that's not really depicted for us. So we can use our imaginations to yeah. figure what happens next. But yeah. I think in my imagination, this just ends in tears. <laughs> you think that's funny, Albert? I think in a world where you can imagine whatever you want, you chose to end it in tears. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious to me. (laughs) What did you imagine? (laughs) I think I just was content to leave it at that. And I, and I preferred not to imagine any further. I, yeah, I would prefer to just, end it on a high note and allow them to live in that moment forever. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) That's pretty reasonable. (laughs) Uh, The story ends when I close the book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not going to write a fanfic continuing their story or anything. (laughs) I would be curious if there was a sequel to this or something out there, but. Who knows? Yeah, I don't well, know. I'd have to look into it. I don't I don't think there is. I mean I had I didn't do like a crazy amount of research, but in the small amount of looking things up that I did, I I didn't see anyone mention That's true. A follow up to it. You would think that that'd be one of the bigger things that they would mention. I don't know yeah. if this book has its own Wikipedia page or not, but if it did, you it does. Assume. It, it, it has its own Wikipedia entry. It's a pretty okay. short entry, but it gives you a little plot summary and mm. uh, a little publication history. It, it does mention that it was nominated for the Outstanding Graphic Novel category in the Ignatz Awards back in 2012. So at okay. least it got some recognition. Yeah, well, we recognize it. And as far as I'm concerned, that's all that matters. Exactly. This this book has the Between the Gutters official stamp of approval. Yep. It, it's called the Guttery. We're we're that's that's our award for it. We're giving it a guttery. <laughs> it's guttertastic. <laughs> it's it's gutterific. <laughs> you got anything else? Uh no, I don't think I really have too many other final thoughts. I think everything that we've talked about so far uh, continues to hold. Um, yeah. Let me think. Actually, let me check my notes real quick. Yeah. Drew yeah, I, absolutely I guess... hates it when we get done with a podcast episode and he realizes that there's something <laughs> that we should have talked about, but we didn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> By the way. Deadly Class has a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> we totally skipped over that fact last week. <laughs> so if you didn't hear about it in last week's episode, you're hearing about it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At the end of this episode about a manga that's completely unrelated to it. <laughs> that's how we continue our podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to get everybody to listen to every episode. Yeah. <laughs> It's the shared podcast-o-matic universe. Exactly. It's the gutterverse. That's what it is. Uh, what were you about to say? Sorry. 
No, I just uh, glanced back at my notes to see if there was anything else that I wanted to mention that we haven't touched on. But I I think we did touch on everything. Uh, Maybe the the last question that I don't remember if I asked you. I mean, we we talked a little bit about how they flipped the artwork for this one. Uh But uh, I don't know if you shared your opinion on that decision. Like, do you are you okay with the idea of flipping manga for English versions, or do you just prefer the original right to left orientation? Uh, well, if you know me and you do, it's not something I ever pay attention to until it's directly in front of me. So I don't really ever. I'll say this in in this particular instance, it's not something that bothered me. It's not something that I think I noticed it as I was reading it that it doesn't read the way that manga does manga does. But some sometimes I think the word balloon placement was a little awkward because of the flip. Well, again, that's you're you're the kind of person who <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm anal retentive about lettering. No, you're you're someone who appreciates the craft of that degree. So it makes sense that you pay attention to that detail. Um, but I, I enjoyed myself and, and as far as I'm concerned, that's, that was enough for me. Like I didn't even real, if there was some word balloon placement that was kind of weird, it, it didn't occur to me. Maybe I'll have to go through it again and, and look more closely, but, uh, yeah, I didn't realize it. Yeah. I think it, I didn't mark down any specific pages, but I think there were some some panels here and there where uh because the the panel was flipped, I think on some of the panels where there are multiple word balloons and some of them are in the like just it's hard to describe without showing, but I think like the the placement of them, I wasn't sure sometimes it wasn't intuitive which order you're supposed to read them from. Because when we're reading a left to right comic, usually the if there are multiple panels, the one that's like on the upper left would be the panel that we start or the balloon that we start reading, right? But then there's there's pages or panels here where the first word balloon is on the bottom left, and then there's a balloon that's to the right of it, but a little above it. Yeah, just instinctively, I think I read the one that's higher first before the one that's on the bottom and I, I think that makes it a little bit confusing here and there i had to get my mind accustomed to it i i will admit there are times where while i'm just reading through it i might veer to the wrong bubble but i think the way i read comics since i'm just blasting through it most of the time there that that happens with almost every comic. At at some point, I just <laughs> kind of lose track, anyways. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to try something here. All right. So I'm gonna put this out here. Uh, so I mentioned at the top of the podcast that I happened to find this book in the discount bin for four bucks, which was a heck of a deal. It was a steal of a deal. Yeah. But I, I'm going to try to this out here is as 
okay let let's let's put it this way let's i'm i'm gonna give you four options with this book and even though i know what you did we we can use this as our metric for how we enjoy the book okay okay would you leave this in the box would you borrow it from the library is this a discount bin buy or is this something you would get at full price when you say leave it in the box what does that mean so if you're at a comic book store and you're digging through a box of comics or leave it on the shelf leave it on the shelf leave it in the box oh okay okay yeah so as in don't buy it at all (laughs) oh okay yeah well seeing as how i bought this book for close to full price i think that's probably my answer of course i would have loved it if i could have found it on sale but right yeah i i didn't really imagine ever being able to come across it in a green apple discount bin but it's fair to say that it's worth buying at full price because you actually you obviously did right yeah yeah i would say that for sure yeah for sure so that being said uh for our new ranking system well you have, we'll, we'll, you have a ranking system yeah i'm, I'm going to try to make this our ranking system see if we can uh keep this up for people that want a short pithy thing that they can point to see that that's funny because in order to hear this short pithy thing that you have to listen to three hours of us podcasting well yeah but if it just boils it down to buy it or not there we go (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i was gonna say i did find it in the discount bin for four bucks but this is something definitely worth owning at full price so if you can't find a deal on it it's it's worth paying yeah. uh retail market price for this sucker yeah don't be afraid to pay cover price for a zoo in winter it's worth exactly it. exactly so that being said do you have any recommendations drew for any any comics or media for people who enjoyed this and would like to read more of similar works yeah i've got a few recommendations actually and first of all again i just want to reiterate the other taniguchi comics that i've read specifically a distant neighborhood a journal of my father the walking man and the quest for the missing girl i think all of those are really great books that are worth reading in and of themselves and i think if you read all of them you'll definitely glean some pretty fun insights into some of the pet themes and ideas and storytelling ticks that Taniguchi seemed to favor uh, throughout his various works. I, if I had to highlight a single one of those, it would be pretty tough. I might just say A Journal of My Father because that's the one that hit me the hardest emotionally. That one is a very uh, realistic kind of story about a man who a middle-aged man who returns to his hometown when his father passes away and you know there's like a funeral and um, all this stuff where he talks with family members and kind of rebuilds 
his image of his father uh, based on the memories and stories that people share with him. Uh, it, it, I really like that that one. But A Distant Neighborhood was the story that hooked me on Taniguchi in the first place just because of its pure entertainment and emotional content. And The Walking Man, that one's just poetry on paper, man. Like I was trying to think of other comics that are poetic, and I don't know if I have too many of those, but The Walking Man definitely has the pace and rhythm of poetry. I got a couple more recommendations, but before I get to those, uh, what about you, Albert? You got anything? Right. So how do you want to do this? You want to fluctuate between me and you or should i just do all of them uh we can fluctuate i don't even know uh what your recommendations are we didn't talk about this before recording That's part of the fun i want i like to surprise you, you you're you're constantly surprising me with all sorts of things whereas you have full access to all of my notes since i put them <laughs> online <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the fun for me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i get off on having power <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that. <laughs> I was going to say, the first thing that came to mind in reading this book was Blankets by Craig Thompson. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That's another coming-of-age story where someone, where that's semi-autobiographical, if not actually autobiographical. I don't know how accurate it is to his life, but... It's another story where a young man is accustomed to living a pretty reserved life until he goes out and really has the opportunity to discover his love of art and also develops a relationship that ultimately leads to some heartache for him. But it's, again, it's this coming of age where he his emotional growth coincides with his artistic awakening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read that one in quite some years, but it's, it's definitely a classic. And I think for a lot of people who were reading comics, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that's definitely a big name comic that, that stands out as one of the highlights. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. All right. Your turn. Okay. My next recommendation is A Drifting Life by Yoshihiro Tatsumi. I mentioned Tatsumi very briefly earlier on as uh, another Japanese comics creator who was known for ge his Gekiga stories. And uh, A Drifting Life is... I don't know if it's considered like his masterwork or anything, but it's one of the longest things that he's done that's been translated into English. The unfortunate thing is I, I think it might be out of print. Drawn and Quarterly published it in English back in like 2009. But if you can find it at a, I don't know, secondhand bookstore or wherever you can get it, it's totally worth reading. It's, again, kind of similar to A Zoo in Winter. A Drifting Life is this thinly veiled autobiographical story about Tatsumi uh, in the early years of his career as uh, as an artist. So you, you just get to see, yeah, I guess I would say it is 
kind of this coming of age story with a lot of scenes of uh, uh, behind the scenes elements of making manga and yeah it's really really sophisticated well done storytelling um try to seek it out if you can for a reasonable price i looked online and some people are selling it for a crazy amount i wouldn't recommend doing that just because it's against my principles (laughs) 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 but if you can find it for like cover price or anything less definitely just buy it Did you ever read A Drifting Life, Albert? Doesn't sound familiar to me. Okay. But I'd have to look at it. I think I uh, first read that one because I borrowed it from our our friend, Justin. Hmm. Yeah. You know what? Let me me pull this up. Let me... It's good stuff, man. I like a lot of Tatsumi's work. Not too much of it has been translated into English. A bunch of years ago, they did try... Drawn and Quarterly did try bringing a series of his short collected short stories, but it seemed like they only did a few volumes and then they kind of stopped. So maybe it just wasn't selling too well, unfortunately. Yeah. Adrian Tomine helped uh, bring those stories over and he even wrote a lot of the, like the extra material in those editions. I'm looking at it. I, I don't remember if I read this one, but it looks, it definitely looks familiar. Yeah, it's good stuff, man. Yeah. What about you? You have anything? Another recommendation? The other recommendation that I have is actually a movie, and okay. it is "Only Yesterday" by Isao Takahata. And this is something that's also—it's not autobiographical, but it's something that takes place in with someone recollecting on their youth. And yeah, on that level, I think it's something that reminds me of a zoo in winter, just going back to this period of time that we don't necessarily see anymore and getting the opportunity to view daily life through this person's lens. So that's something I would recommend. Did you say only yesterday? Yeah. Did, okay. Did I not say that? Uh, I don't remember. I, yeah. I just I just wanted to to make sure. I was surprised. Was that? Because because that one's my favorite Ghibli movie. Yeah. So. Is it a? Is it a surprise? Kind of. I I wasn't expecting you to share that one as a recommendation. Do you not think it's apt? <laughs> no, no, I, I think it is apt. I was, I just wasn't expecting it. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Huh. You, you know, it's like you were saying, you're, you're constantly taking me by surprise. Yeah. It's, uh, it's how I get my rocks off. <laughs> you need a much better social life. <laughs> <laughs> What you got, Drew? My final recommendation is another manga, and it's a semi-recent one. It's called Look Back by Tatsuki Fujimoto. He's the guy whose name you might recognize from Chainsaw Man. And we we did talk about Chainsaw Man in our most listened to episode from last year. But if you listen to that, uh, I think 
you heard that we probably weren't super enthusiastic about Chainsaw Man. However, Look Back is a standalone graphic novel that I think everybody should go out and read. It's probably the most affecting, poignant, powerful, thoughtful, and meaningful thing that I've read in a while. It's a story about two very different girls who are united by a love for drawing and making manga. It's a story about growing up and chasing your dreams. It's about the grind and grit of the creative process. It's about friendship and trust. It's about incremental improvements over long periods of dedicated striving. Then something happens, which I'm not going to spoil because you need to read this for yourself. And then it becomes a story about so much more. It becomes a story about why do we care about art? What do comics mean? Why do comics matter? And there's definitely a sense of melancholy and reflection in that work. It's a really great piece of comic storytelling, just the craftsmanship of it. The drawings are so on point, just a beautiful work on every level. Like you can study this. It's It's got something that has a bunch of layers because it works on that simple inspirational level like a shonen story, but it also reaches levels of emotional complexity that I'm still processing after reading just, you know, a few weeks ago. There's just so much to it. It's a simple story on the surface, but it's also a story about making comics and about art. And why do people make comics and still care about stuff like that when there's like all these other things going on in life? Yeah, it's an amazingly poignant piece of work, man. Heavily recommend it. That's something I would buy at cover price. Nice, nice. Well, who knows? We may discuss that at some point in a future episode. Mm -hmm. Could mm -hmm. be worth talking about. Definitely. Yeah. All right. I uh, don't really have anything else. Well, I had one more recommendation, but not really, because, well, the director is Woody Allen, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm probably not going to recommend it, but yeah. You want to recommend, curious, you wanna recommend an R. Kelly album or something? <laughs> I was going to say, if you were curious, I was thinking about recommending Midnight in Paris, but yeah, uh, I probably can't in good conscience do that because, well, he's just kind of gross. <laughs> Anyways, so if anyone has anything to say, feel free to hit us up at Between the Gutters podcast at gmail.com or DM us on our Instagram at Between the Gutters. You can tweet at us or, yeah, uh, those are the three social medias that we're on. I forget if we're on anything else. If we happen to be listening to the, listening to us on uh, whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on, if you could leave a good rating, that would be much appreciated. That's right. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is episode 159 of Between the Gutters. We just discussed A Zoo in Winter by Jiro Taniguchi. Thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next time. Peace. Bye, everyone. <laughs>